Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, just a brief housekeeping here. I hope you all enjoyed the beginning of the Oliver Berkman series on time management that uh, I previewed here in the last episode. Again, the rest of that will soon be appearing over at Waking Up in our new life section. And the whole point of this section is to bring relevant philosophy and science to bear on the question of how to live a good life. And that will include conversations between me and outside experts, but also courses designed by other people. And we have some interesting courses already in the works there. Also, I enjoyed the previous podcast with Peter Zion and Ian Bremer. That was a new format where I invited a subject matter expert to ride shotgun with me and help facilitate a conversation that was somewhat outside my wheelhouse. Perhaps I'll do more of that, or even begin moderating some debates here. I've thought about doing that for a while, and this seems like a good provocation in that direction. And also just a reminder that we launched the Best of Making Sense podcast, where we surface some of the evergreen episodes from previous years. I know many of you are enjoying that, but for those of you who haven't discovered it, it is a separate podcast where subscribers to Making Sense get full episodes, and otherwise we release half episodes in podcatchers everywhere. Okay, today I'm speaking with Mark Andreessen. Mark is a co-founder and general partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He is one of the few people to pioneer a whole software category used by more than a billion people and one of the few to establish multiple billion-dollar companies. Mark co-created the first proper internet browser, Mosaic, which then became Netscape, uh, which he later sold to AOL for $4.2 billion. He also co-founded LoudCloud, which as Opsware was sold to Hewlett-Packard for $1.6 billion. Uh, He later served on the board of Hewlett-Packard from 2008 to 2018. Mark holds a degree in computer science from the University of Illinois, and he serves on the board of several Andreessen Horowitz portfolio companies, Applied Intuition, Carta, Dialpad, Honor, OpenGov, and Samsara Networks. And he is also on the board of Meta, otherwise known as Facebook. And in this episode, we cover a lot of ground. We talk about the current state of internet technology and culture, some of what has gone right, but there is much that is in the process of going wrong. We discuss Mark's background in tech, the birth of the internet, how advertising became the business model for digital media. We talk about the three stages of the web and the birth of blockchain how successful technology reorders status and power in society, the uh, Bitcoin white paper, the mystery surrounding the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, the importance of distributed consensus, Bitcoin as digital gold, how society has performed during COVID, James Burnham and managerial capitalism, the ubiquitous principal agent problem, negative externalities, risk and regulation, Trust in Institutions, What the Fuck Happened in 1971, Regulatory Capture, Banning Trump and Alex Jones from Social Media, Perverse Incentives in Philanthropy, 
and other topics. Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation. Mark knows a lot about a lot, and uh, he's a very fast talker. I'm a slow talker, so those of you who listen to this podcast on 2x are probably screwed for this one. Anyway, I now bring you Mark Andreessen. I am here with Mark Andreessen. Mark, thanks for joining me. Hey, Sam. It's great to be here. So uh, we have a lot to talk about. You are a man of uh, many talents and uh, wide experience. And um, we haven't hung out much, but uh, I've spoken to you enough to get a uh, glimmer of your um, polymathic intentions, if not actual achievements. It's really, you see, you cover an incredible range of material in your, um, just in your, your information diet. And I, I want to get into to what you're most focused on and, and worried about these days. Sure. And I also want, I want to talk about your background a little bit, because people will know some of it, but I think in having you recapitulate a little, little bit of that journey into tech, you might be able to give us some insights as to what we should be thinking about now. But first, a high level, what do you, how do you describe yourself these days in terms of what you do professionally and what you focus on? Yeah, so my, my career has had kind of three stages so far. So you know, stage one was as an engineer, and I was I was trained as an engineer, and sort of that that sort of method of engineering is kind of central to to, to everything, as it turns out that, that at least I, I do and think about. Then I became an entrepreneur, so I went into into business despite <laughs> having taken zero uh, business courses mm. and sort of went to the school of hard knocks. And so um, you know went into business and started uh, you know originally my first company with my partner Jim Clark in '94, and then my second company with Ben. Horowitz in 99 and then so forth and so on. And then, you know, phase three starting in 2009 was to become an investor, a professional investor, a venture capitalist. And so that's uh, phase three and then maybe some, someday one more phase, but uh, mm -hmm. the, at least those, those three have kept me busy so far. Oh, and then, you know, what, what we do, you know, so what does it mean to be a venture capitalist? You know, basically we're, uh, think of it as like we're a hub that's the sort of center of flows of basically ideas, people, and money would be the mm -hmm. way to think about it. So we, you know, try to stay on the leading edge of all the new areas of technology. We try to know all the really smart people who are working on new technology and want to be part of the technology ecosystem. And then we, we raise, we raise, and then we actually raise money and we invest money. Um, and we, you know, we get very, we invest in startups. We get very deeply involved in the companies. We are typically on the board We're, you know, we're, we're very often the, the, the founders kind of, you know, main outside confidant mm -hmm. advisor, you know, we, 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 you know, we get the call when things go horribly wrong and, you know, try to pitch in and help. And, you know, and then try to maximize the success for the companies that, you know, that kind of hit, hit a chord. Yeah. And how would you describe your politics at this point? <laughs> so I would say mostly I'm sort of, uh, you know, on an ice flow all by myself, headed slowly out to sea. Hmm. Um, well, I, I think there's a few people on that flow with you. <laughs> That's probably or at least on nearby flows. Uh, drifting together and apart. So I, 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 this is, you know, I, I could go on at length about this. I, I, I was always kind of a centrist Democrat, like basically everybody else I knew in, mm -hmm. in tech and in the Valley. You know, the, the Valley is like, you know, 99%. You know, the picture always gets painted, the Valley is a bunch of radical libertarians or something. And in reality, it's just like 99%, basically Clinton Democrats. And now, you know, kind of whatever, <laughs> Warren Democrats, Bernie Democrats. And so, you know, I, I was always that up until like call it 2015, 2016. And then like everybody else, I was just completely shocked by really by two things. One was Trump winning, you know, both the nomination and the election, and then also just the, the huge shift on the left, yeah. you know, that, 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 that took place. And so I, I kind of, 
checked out of traditional politics in 2015 and kind of went on a spirit walk and decided to try to kind of reread everything from scratch and figure out what was going on. And I've kind of come out the other side in sort of a weird, fuzzy, undefined <laughs> state. So I don't, I don't even know that I even apply any labels. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not doing anything politically. I'm, I'm, I'm completely out of it. So um, I'm, I'm mostly just trying to learn and understand at this point more, more than like have positions. Yeah. Well, that describes my own political identity pretty well at this moment. Perhaps we'll get back to that. I, I think I don't think we'll focus on politics, but the political context will inform much of what we say about the breakdown and, and rebuilding or failures of rebuilding uh, around institutions and solving the massive coordination problem of how, how do we get strangers who don't trust themselves all that much or trust one another all that much to collaborate. But uh, before we talk about your background earlier, again, high level, what would you say have been a few of the, the influences or life experiences that you currently consider most formative of your worldview on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, I think, you know, look, part of it was growing up in the sort of, you know, Midwest. I, I used to think I traveled sort of this weird road from like rural agricultural Midwest all the way to kind of high-tech Silicon Valley. And it was kind of, you know, an unusual thing. And then I, I discovered years later, I discovered Tom Wolfe, the great American, you know, novelist reporter, wrote a long form profile of a guy named Robert Noyce, who was basically the inventor of the microchip um, mm. and the creator of, you know, Intel and the, basically the creator of, of the tech industry as we know it today. And he wrote this profile of, of Bob Noyce and Bob Noyce basically was like an Iowa farm, farm boy, you know, who grew up in like rural Iowa and then moved to, um, you know, moved to the Valley and sort of created, created the Valley, created technology as we know it today. And so it's, and then, you know, Wolf also pointed out, like, that's the story of like Philo Farnsworth who created television and, you know, and many others. And so there's, there's like, you know, I always describe the, the valley is like this intersection of like 1950s style Midwestern tinkerer, engineer, you know, the, the guys with like the brush cuts and the white short sleeve polyester shirts, mm -hmm. you know, like you see in all the old photos of NASA or something. It's, it's kind of got that kind of square culture, engineering kind of nerd culture. And then it's got the kind of 1960s California counterculture, you know, which is because it, it happened here. And so that, that, that stuff all kind of threaded into it. And it's, it's, it's like, it's like balanced on a knife's edge between those two cultures. And so I definitely, you know, kind of come out of that, of that kind of former background. So yeah, I mean, going from, you know, there to here, you know, was, was, was very important. You know, look, partnering with my, you know, my business partner, Jim Clark was, you know, a very successful entrepreneur, you know, what was the founder of one of the most successful companies in the history of the industry. And I, I kind of got lucky and that I got to work with him at a time when he wanted to start a new company and all the smart people he knew were kind of working at his current company. So he had to go get fresh blood and I happened, <laughs> I happened to be newly arrived. And so. You know, we kind of we kind of hooked up and built built our company Netscape. That was formative. Uh, the dot com crash <laughs> was a very formative experience. Mm. You know, we hit that really hard. And then, you know, look the last you know the last twenty years. You know, the fact the internet didn't die after two thousand, and like there was like a whole second tech boom. And then, you know, everything kind of magically coming together starting in two thousand seven or two thousand eight between the iPhone and broadband and social networking and everything else that created the world we're in today. You know, all, all this stuff at this point has worked, you know, way beyond any expectation any of us could have possibly had. So, you know, kind of, kind of seeing that all crystallize and come together, you know, has really, really, really taught me a lot. And then, of course, you know, now we're in whatever weird state we're in today. Yeah. That, that's kind of how I got here. So and what was your academic background before you became an Internet pioneer? Well, you, you did a CS degree? Yeah. So I, it was a classic Midwestern kind of story, which is, of course, you know, the purpose of a college education is to make money. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> none of this, none of this right. fairy stuff. And so I went to the U.S. News and World Report issue in, I think, 1988, and I looked up the uh, in income levels by a bachelor's degree. Uh, and of course, the top degree was electrical engineering at that time. 
And so, and then I looked for the top double E schools and the number three school was uh, University of Illinois, which is right across the border. So, you know, that, that made those two decisions easy. I got in school and then discovered I hugely preferred software, which I should have known because I was always coding as a kid, but mm-hmm. I just software, there's just, you know, double E's are, you know, tremendously important and have, have done a lot to build the modern world, but software, there's a level of creativity that's just hard to do in atoms. And so, uh, you know, I kind of got seduced by software and then got a computer science degree. And so let, let, let's talk through what happened with Mosaic and, and Netscape for a few minutes. I mean, most people will associate your name with Netscape, but it was Mosaic first, right? I mean, you, you started this yeah. company, and um, w- what was the name change about? What happened there? Well, it didn't start as a company. And so it started as a, as a project. It started as a project at the University of Illinois. Mm. And so it started as a federally funded research project at, at what was at the time at the time called the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, which the, the, the sort of short version is, remember when Al Gore said that he invented the internet? Yeah. It, it turns out that story is actually largely true <laughs> in the sense of what he actually said was, you know, the full quote was, I took the lead in creating the internet in the Senate. And that, that story actually is true, which is mm-hmm. in the Senate, the US Senate in the mid-1980s funded two things that ended up being very important for my career. One was they funded the internet backbone, the, what was called at the time NSFNet after the National Science Foundation. And then they funded what were called the, the four national supercomputing centers. When, and one of those just happened to be at the University of Illinois. The significance of that was basically they just dropped like a ton of money on, on these, four, these four universities, including Illinois, to basically buy state-of-the-art computers and then hook them up to the, the internet. And, you know, this is starting in the mid-80s. And so by the, way, by the time I got there in 89, this was kind of underway. And so we, we, we had, in retrospect, basically a modern computing, internet, networking, broadband, graphical environment just, you know, basically five, 10 years before the rest of the world. So you, you could kind of see it working. Was that pure serendipity? Or did you actually know going to Illinois that you were going to have access to unusual computer resources? Well, they were, you know, like I said, they were number three ranked for double E nationally. It was like mm-hmm. MIT, Stanford, and then University of Illinois. So that reflected that they were top 10 CS at the time. So they, they were no, I mean, they were by far the best engineering school in the Midwest at that point. Um, and it was just too much of a leap at that point in my life to go to the East Coast or the West Coast. So, right. so it, 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 the reason they ranked so high is because they were so central. Like they had, they had, the, you know, they had these very advanced programs and all these resources. And so, you know, I had a glimmer of it. I knew about it, but you know, I, I didn't fully understand the import until I got there and I saw it. Right. And then basically, and what happened was NSF basically just like funded this essentially to build the modern internet at, at the time as, as a research, as a research, you know, something for scientists at the time. This is back in the days so there was actually. Um, it was actually illegal to do business on the internet during this period, right? There was a, something <laughs> called the, the acceptable use policy that basically banned all commercial transactions. So, so it was purely a research thing. Nobody really envisioned it having real world applications at that time. It was just kind of for scientists and academics. But, you know, there was a research group there that had the job of basically writing software to make the internet work for, you know, people. Mm. And we basically had a project that started as kind of a renegade project that became an official project that was this thing called Mosaic, which was the first browser that kind of got widely used. It kind of pulled in all the functions, made everything graphical, and then made it work really well and fast and secure and so forth. And then everybody started using that on the internet as it then existed. Uh, And that was basically, that was when I was making $6.25 an hour. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hope you invested that wisely because I'm told compounding really works. (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> until recently. Yes, right. Until, until, until inflation. Yeah, right yeah, until the last two months. So yes. then you formed a proper company, Netscape. And yeah. what happened? What, what, what happened to Netscape as a product? Yeah, well, so first of all, it was very, it was very tenuous that we ever even started that company because it was, it was so, 
there was such a wall of negativity. It was so universally known that the internet was not something that ordinary people would ever use. Right. And it, and the, if you read the newspapers and magazines at the time, mm. they were just wall to wall. When they wrote about the internet, it was primarily either as an object of curiosity that would never matter or, or negatively of this thing's never going to matter. What year are we now? 94? 93, 94. 94. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, kind of 92, 93, 94. The, the first issue of Wired Magazine, I, I bought the first issue of Wired Magazine off the newsstand in, I think, 90, early 93, when I was working on Mosaic, uh, or late 92. And it, I remember uh, bought it like four in the morning, going to do a, do, a, uh, mm-hmm. do a snack run. And I saw this thing on the newsstand, and I you know, was excited. Finally, a magazine for me, and I went back to my office and read it from front to back, and it didn't even men- mention the internet, right? And I was like, <laughs> okay, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm on the wrong end of this whole thing. So, and, and it's not that Wired got anything wrong. It's just that that was universally the view. And all the experts said that, and all the big company CEOs said that. It's just this is not a, this is not going to be a thing. So, what was motivating you at that point? Did you actually believe that everyone was wrong and realize that the internet was going to be a way to not only get rich but just basically do more or less everything that was going to prove indispensable in the future? Or were you just tinkering and and following your interests without any big picture vision? So it was actually a process of elimination, which is we kind of tried everything else instead. Mm. <laughs> Basically concluded that, nope, it was just going to be the internet. And so uh, my partner, Jim, and I actually had other business plans that we kind of cycled through trying to do, inter- at the time, interactive television was this big idea. And then we, we tried to do, we had a plan for an online gaming network that's sort of like what Xbox Live today is today. We basically worked through all these other ideas for kind of advanced, you know, AOL at that point was starting to work a little bit. So it's like, mm-hmm. what would it mean to do one of those, like a proprietary consumer service? And we, we, we kind of kept, you know, just we, we had the startup mentality of like, okay, well, let's from scratch make a business plan for building a company that does anything like this. And, and basically we cycled through all the other ideas and, and, and then, you know, in the background kind of mosaic kind of kept growing, right? It, it kept going after I left Illinois and, you know, more, more people were using it. And it was just like, you know, I was, and I still had my, you know, I had my email login. And so I, I had the, <laughs> I had the, I had, um, I had the account. Mosaic was, was free for academic use. But it had a, we put a provision in the license that said you have to pay for commercial use. And we just did that as a placeholder because we didn't have a business model at Illinois. But I had the email box. I had the email box where people would send in commercial inquiries where they would want to do something, you know, in the commercial sector with it, like e-commerce or whatever. And so, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these like messages coming in from people who wanted to do crazy, crazy things like I want to build a bookstore on the Internet. Like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right? so, Lose my email, Jeff. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, pre-Jeff, right? Pre-Jeff, yeah. you know, even, even before that. And so, yeah, so I just like, at some point, Jim and I literally looked at each other and we're like, okay, th- this internet thing might actually be the thing. Like maybe all these other experts are just wrong. Maybe this actually is the correct thing. And, it, you know, I look, the internet had all kinds of problems and issues that I could take you through. It has a long litany of, you know, people had all these complaints about it that were correct. It's not secure and you can't do transactions and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And it's not fast, right? And it's just like, well, you know, look, if the network effect really takes and lots of people sign up to use this and lots of businesses come online, then it's going to drive an investment wave that's going to solve all these other problems, which is basically what happened. And so we, we, we kind of did what in retrospect was the obvious decision, which is we just leaned in hard on that. Right. And how did the business model get anchored to ads? Because of all the things oh. that could have gone differently in the beginning, um, and maybe the tech wasn't there, you just said there, there, was, there was no way to pay for things, but it seems like that could have been an early priority. And I'm not sure you entirely share my my view of just how diabolical the ad-based economy has been in the end. But I wonder what, what was that moment like where you just slap a banner ad on it and that's how you, you monetize the future of digital media? Yeah, so it's because we had, no, we had no native money, right? We had no native ability to do money. We had no way to do microtransactions. 
we knew this at the time. So we, we knew right up front. We were like, look, there needs to be a way to send and receive money. There needs to be a way to do e-commerce. There needs to be a way to do microtransactions. We knew this at the time. There were two kind of big things, and we were in a position to do it because we had, the, we had the, the browser, but we also had the servers and the e-commerce software and all the back, the back end stuff. And so mm-hmm. we were in a position to, to do all this. So th- we figured there were two parts of the problem. Part one was cryptography, right? So basically security, right? So to be able to have like secure, you know, secure communication. And we invented this protocol called SSL for secure cryptography. It's the, it's the first widely used kind of delivery of, of, of the science of cryptography to consumers. You know, sort of happened as a, a consequence of the Netscape browser and, and, and SSL. And, and that's, by the way, that's still in use. SSL is still the right. encryption method for the internet today. So, so that part worked. And then the other part was like, okay, you need to plug into the existing banking system, right? And you need to be able to plug in so people can load, you know, have their credit card, their debit card, their bank account, their checking account, because they've got all their money somewhere and they've got to be able to, you know, kind of get it to the internet. And so for that, we went and we started talking to all the big banks and the big credit card companies. And, you know, we got, again, this sort of wall of skepticism. Everybody kind of told us basically, <laughs> basically F off. This is never going to work. And then we got our big meeting that kind of really hammered this home for me. We, we, we found this guy at uh, just, I guess I shouldn't name names specifically, but one of the very big credit card companies, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, there was a CTO who was like considered, we, we were told he was like the visionary for the payments industry and the guy that everybody listened to. And it's like, if you can get him on your side, you know, you can really do something here. So we had him to our office. He had not used the internet or Mosaic or Netscape at that point. So we sat him down in front of a workstation, you know, with a keyboard and a mouse and a big screen and, you know, had it all queued up for the demo and said, you know, and I, and I basically pointed on the, uh, you know, the, the, the first link on the screen and I said, you know, click here. And so, of course, he reaches up with his finger and touches the screen. <laughs> um, and this is, you know, 1994, right. right? So there's no touch screens. Yeah. So nothing happens. Um, and then I'm like, no, no, you use the mouse. And so then, of course, he looks at the mouse and then, of course, he picks it up. Right. And so, you know, and, you know why, why, how could that possibly be the case? Well, because the, the entire banking payments industry at that point was on mainframes from 30 years earlier. Right. They, you know, they didn't do new things. <laughs> That's not what they were in business to do. And so I, I remember in that meeting, you know, it's just like, okay, this is it. We're sunk. There's no way this can happen. So, so, you know, we tried, Microsoft tried, other people tried, AOL tried, and it's just, there was never any way to do it. And so, you know, if you can't charge people for things then you got to run ads and that basically is what happened. Hmm. Let's maybe give us a, a short primer on, on the stages of development here. We have Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3. I'm imagining you envision Web 3 as ushering a, a new age of monetizing everything potentially in a secure, trustless way. Right. So let's climb there. What, what do we mean by Web 1, 2, and 3 at this point? Sure. So my partner, Chris Dixon, has sort of the best encapsulation of this. He says, Web one was read, right? And so the, the big breakthrough was you go online, you could read stuff, you could see stuff, you could do searches, you could do all this, but you were like, you know, you could consume. Web two was what he calls read write, right? So, and that's sort of the social networking, blogging, video, YouTube, you know, kind of user generated content era, right? So not only could you read, you could do what you do. You could, you could, uh, you know, not only listen, you could produce podcasts. And that, that led to the, you know, kind of the whole the world that we've been in. And then he says, web three is read, write, and own. Right. And, and own means you can own value, right? You can own money. You can own digital assets, right? You can own, you know, you can, you can have ownership claims on things, right? Or, you, or, you, or, you know, you could equivalently, you could say read, write, pay. You could say read, write, you know, make money. You know, you could apply whatever term you want to that, that third one. But basically, basically fill in all of the economics and all of the capability of having incentives and ownership that really should have been there from the start that, like I said, you know, we tried to get in from the start, but we just didn't have the technology for. Now we basically have a chance with these new technologies of blockchain, cryptocurrency, Web3. You know, we have this, we have basically, we, we think a chance to kind of do the other half of the internet is mm-hmm. how I think about it, or, the, you know, the other third, 
And it's basically have a trust layer, a money layer, and an ownership layer that rides on top of the sort of untrusted, unowned, you know, kind of space that's been the internet so far. And then kind of, you know, fill in all the things that we wish we'd been able to do from the start, but, but now we can actually do. Uh, I wouldn't be alone in noticing that there's a fair amount of skepticism about Web3 at this point and a fair amount of schadenfreude watching cryptocurrency crash or almost crash in recent months. Do you view that skepticism as truly analogous to all of the naysayers around Web1 when they thought the internet was just going to be a bust and that no one was ever going to migrate away from either their answering machine, even this email thing wasn't going to take off? Or do you think there is a greater foundation for a perception of uh, misspent dreams and failures of scaling the technology? I mean, around the, the energy concerns, the cost of it all, the capacity for fraud, the tulip mania aspect of the kind of the investing landscape or the speculation landscape there. How much of this is an echo of the, the early 90s and how much of this is a, a genuinely new condition of uncertainty? Yeah, so there's a lot in there and we can, you know, we can go through each of those points. Hmm. Here's the big thing I'd say overall. Look, a lot of things just don't work, right? So a lot of people have ideas for things that don't work. And so, you know, it's always possible that the critics are correct. And it's always possible something either is just never going to work. Or, or the other possibility is things are just too early, right? What happens with a lot of new technologies is they just take time. Hmm. You know, there were people doing analog, there were people doing mechanical television 30 years before Philo Farnsworth did electronic television. <laughs> they did mechanical television like the 1880s, 1890s with like spinning wooden blocks representing pixels. <laughs> right, right. Right. And so there's this prehistory, you know, it's like, uh, what was it? Paris had a telegraph system working through uh, flashes of light through uh, long glass tubes under the streets of Paris in like the 1830s, right? Which was not right. practical, right? Because the tubes kept breaking. But like, pe you know, people had that idea way before the telegraph rolled out. So, so anyway, you know, look, for any new technology, maybe you're just early, maybe you're just wrong altogether. Maybe it doesn't happen. For the new technologies that do work, you see basically a pattern of the reaction to them. Um, and I used to kind of think I was make, I was kind of fantasizing this. And then I, I found a book that kind of explained it. It's this book by this MIT guy named Elting Morrison 50 years ago, where he kind of goes through, this is even pre-internet, but he goes through the whole history of new technologies. And he said, there's basically a three-stage process to the adoption of any new technology. Stage one is just ignore, right? Where basically just people pretend it doesn't even exist. And of course that's, you know, the internet was ignored basically from mm -hmm. the 1960s through to the, like I said, kind of even, into the, even into the early 90s. Stage two is basically vigorous protest. And that's the stage where basically it's like, a, it's like basically here are the 30 reasons this can never happen. Or, or call it the, the reasons phase, right? So here's the 30 reasons this can never happen. And usually what that is, is, is a laundry list of everything that's technically wrong with new technology, right? So the internet, it was, it's too slow and it's not graphical and it's this and it's insecure and the hackers and, you know, fraud and, you know, all, mm. this, all these sort of, you know, basically facts. By the way, real issues, right? These are all issues that actually had to get fixed and, and then ultimately were fixed. And then he, he said, stage three, stage three in the book, he says, is when the name calling begins. Mm -hmm. And so stage three is basically rage. And what he basically says is, is, it's basically rage. It's basically the existing power structures basically just like go incandescent with rage. And, and he said, the reason for that is because any new technology that works is a reordering of status and power, right, in, in the system. And basically the, you know, the status quo is, you know, what do they hate more than anything else? You know, reordering of status and power, right? There's only mm -hmm. downside for them. And so they just go crazy. And that's when they pull out all the stops and they call you names and they try to put you in jail and you know, they do everything under the sun they can possibly do to sabotage it. And then, you know, and then look, it, it has to prove itself, right? It has to, you know, to get through those three gauntlets, like it has to be a real thing. So, so like I said, it's not predictive that because something goes through this, it is going to work. It's just that every single time something yeah. works like this, it goes through these stages. 
And so at, at this point, like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like inured to it, right? Like, it's just, I've seen it now so many times uh, in the exact same sequence of, of, of things that I'm just like, okay, fine, you know, bring it. This is mm -hmm. what they're going to do. We're just going to keep going. What percentage of your time and commitment of resources at this point is focused on Web3? I mean, we might actually need to, I know I've done this on other podcasts, but we probably should define Web3 a little bit more, just differentiating, you know, cryptocurrency from everything else that could be done on the blockchain. But um, sure. you can do that. But, yeah. but then how much of your attention and, and material resources are, are aimed at that at the moment? Yeah, it's, look, it's a very big push for us. So we have a very big group in the space now. It's probably a third of, I would say, you know, you could, you could top line it and say maybe a third of the firm in terms mm -hmm. of a combination of people and money. Right. Which right. for us, is, it's, one of our big, it's one of our biggest, it's one of our biggest things. Okay, so, so give me the potted definition of Web3 at the moment. Yeah, so let's take the three terms that we kind of, again, kind of conjoin. So, so blockchain is like the underlying technological breakthrough. So, so basically what happened was this, 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 this person, he, she, it, or they, mm -hmm. named Satoshi Nakamoto, ne never identified. Well, are you swearing that this is not you? It is definitely not oh, me, okay. although if it was, that's exactly what I would be saying. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but still, I trust no you somehow in, the, in this trustless environment. Well, say, you know, same is true for you. Yeah. If it was you, you'd be asking, you'd be pretending to ask me the question without knowing too. So. I think it does stand a better chance of being you, given our, <laughs> our different backgrounds. But um, do you have any suspicions about who it is or whether it's a, a single individual? Yeah, there are suspicions. Most of the people in the space think it, it was a combination of people. It, 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 was a, it was a deep technological breakthrough, and it built on, you know, it was one of these things that built on 30 years of prior work. It's against one of these things that had kind of a long windup before, mm -hmm. before it happened. And so it was somebody, and he, he, she, it, or they posted a lot on forums, and you can read all the posts as it was in development. So you can kind of see whoever it was had like a very deep knowledge in the space. And that, that kind of reduces it down to a pretty small number of candidates just given the, the nature of the technology at that time. So it was probably, people think it was a handful of those people probably working together. This is the Bitcoin yeah. white paper, uh, which, yeah. w when is this, 2010, 9? 2009, 9. 2009. Well, by the way, profoundly significant, by the way, just profoundly significant, this gets missed. 2009 was the low of the economy and the stock market and everything else and the high of unemployment following the financial crisis, mm -hmm. right? So it was the last year you would expect a major new break. Like everybody was in a horrible mood in 2009. I remember it very clearly because we started the firm then and everybody was like uniformly negative that you could start a new venture capital firm. And so in the middle of just like complete misery, and by the way, in the middle of like the collapse of the prior financial system, right? The, the sort of what we call the trad financial system, mm. right? Just being like completely trash and discredited and falling apart and having to be bailed out, right? This like magic thing happens. This paper comes out and it just like, re, you know, basically redefines the industry. It, it was a very special moment. Did you see its significance immediately? No, I didn't. No, I, no, I wouldn't claim that. You know, it, it was something kind of people knew about. Everybody read it. People talked about it a lot. It, it was like a parlor game in Silicon Valley for the first five years or so. Which is, it's like, you know, e like even in Silicon Valley, right? It's like, okay, this probably is not going to be a thing. Like really mm -hmm. internet money, you know, geez, right? Like all the reasons why, you, you know, you sh shouldn't be able to do that, can't do that, it won't work. Uh, but, you know, what the, the, the Silicon Valley parlor game of that is less maybe for, you know, some people had foresight and saw it, but a lot of people didn't. And a lot of us were like, wow, but wouldn't it be cool if it did, right? And so then the parlor game was like, wow, like, you know, what if, you know, we always have the joke, it's like on Earth 2, right? You know, this stuff is all working, right? And it's like, well, what would Earth 2 be like if it really had Bitcoin everywhere? And it's like, wow, this is a really cool idea. And then at some point, you know, we, we and others were just like, okay, like we need to stop being idiots here and basically just be like, yeah, this is actually a thing. This is actually going to happen. This stands a very good chance of actually happening. Mm. Our, our credit, our partner, Balaji Srinivasan, you know, was the guy who kind of got us really clued in on this and, you know, kind of sat us down at one point. It's like, look, you guys have to stop thinking about this as hypothetical, like this thing is actually happening. And so, you know, we were early relative to 
the world, but there were other people in the valley who were ahead of us. Mm. And is there a um, kind of an initial cache of Bitcoin that has not been claimed, which is Satoshi's coin, or is there an initial wallet that has, is, still has the coin sitting in it, or what, what's the, the story there? Yeah, so this is part of the great kind of <laughs> mythic legend behind the whole thing. So, you know, all of Bitcoin is basically based on this underlying science of cryptography, right? Which is a, you know, it's an ancient science, but in its modern form, you know, it's a 50, 60 year old kind of thing in terms of the, the way we use the technologies now, the so-called public key cryptography. And so it's, it's all based on that. And as part of that, you can have what are called private keys that are uniquely yours. And as part of that, you can sign messages with your private key and, and such that anybody in the world can decode them or read them, but only you could have written them. Right, so you, you mm. can have like absolute validation that you were the you were the right you were the creator, um, and then the the and then Bitcoin wallets basically work the same way. Like you have a private key for the wallet, and anybody who has the private key can decrypt it. Right, it's like a bearer instrument in that way. But anybody who doesn't have the private key, like can't you know they have no claim to it. And so and very, you know along the over the years, various people show up and claim to be Satoshi, but like none of them can like demonstrate that they have the private key. None of them can you know so therefore you have nothing. So anyway, we sort of know, we know how to recognize Satoshi when we see mm. it or they, which is they can use their private key to sign things. They could also use their private key to unlock the money. I don't know what the current value is. I'm in a guess it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to $50 billion US dollars today right, right. that is sitting in a wallet somewhere that the Satoshi key unlocks. That money has never been touched. But that, that's an extraordinary fact if, yes. if it's a single individual or a, a group of people. I mean, this is, even without that, this is one of the best kept secrets ever. Yes. But when you look at the treasure Sierra Madre incentives that that uh, are growing with that kind of wealth locked up in a box, how do you explain that? This is just this, this person is ideologically so pure and enamored of the brilliance of this founding myth and moment that they're just they're not tempted to suddenly own fifty billion dollars. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so this is the amazing thing. The fact that money was not claimed for a long time, right? And by the way, the message has stopped after the Bitcoin white paper came out, Satoshi stopped posting mm. in public. And so, and, and by the way, you have to pause for a second here to say how prescient must this person have been to not only develop this thing and write it and create it after basically 30 years of people trying to do the same thing, by the way, like this, this was the breakthrough. How prescient was he, she, it, or they? that not only did they get the technology right, but also they knew ahead of time that they needed to stay anonymous, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's not normal. Like, it's not, like, I've never been anonymous. Like, it's not normal in our industry to be anonymous. Yeah. And so whoever it is had, like, tremendous, tremendous foresight to, 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 to know to do that. And then, yeah, to not claim the money. So the, the prevailing view for a long time was he, she, it, or they are dead, right? right? Which is the most, most obvious thing. And, and, and you know, there, there is at least one candidate for Satoshi who did pass away. So you know, it, 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 it's, it's certainly possible that's the case. It's also possible, by the way, something very embarrassing happened. It's possible he, she, it, or they lost Forgot their key. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot yeah. their key, which would be embarrassing. Yeah. The kind of thing that might torture you for a long time. And then this weird thing happened. I don't know if you remember, there was Newsweek magazine did this cover story claiming that they had uncovered Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm, and no. they, 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 okay. So uh, this is several years ago now, this huge uh, Newsweek cover story. And they said, we found Satoshi. And they identified an older gentleman who is a Japanese American named Dorian Nakamoto, who is like an aerospace engineer or something in like, I forget, Southern California somewhere, like I don't want to say San Diego or Orange County. And they did this entire expose about he's the guy. And the whole time he's like, I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy. And they're like, yes, you are. And, and you know, in the, in the CS community, like we're all like, well, he's not a computer scientist. He's not, he's a, he seems like he's like a smart engineer, but he doesn't have this background. Like this seems weird. 
So anyway, there was one final message signed by Satoshi's private key that came out at that point, and it literally was, I am not Dorian Nakamoto. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then Satoshi has since gone quiet. And so now we're, we're, back, we're back to the great mystery, which, you know, I, I hope, will, you know, I don't know. I don't know, actually, I don't know if I hope it gets solved. I would, you know, the engineer in me would like to know, but, you know, it may be better for, you know, I think the world should have some mystery to it. And if this is the fundamental breakthrough that sort of is a division in, you know, before and after in civilization, we never find out who the person was. I think there's something romantic about that. So yeah, I, no, I kind of hope we never find out. It's a great story. So I derailed you. You did not yet differentiate Bitcoin from all else that can happen on the blockchain. Yeah. So blockchain is the under, so basically the white paper basically came out, the Bitcoin white paper, it's very short, people can read it. And basically, um, the, uh, basically it says we have this, basically a data structure called the blockchain, which is a way to do a decentralized, permissionless, basically data structure that everybody agrees on, which we could talk about sort of, it's sort of a way to do a, a database, but a, in a database that kind of is spread out across the internet, we call that the blockchain, it's literally a chain of blocks. And then, so, the, and, and the, the computer science term is distributed consensus. And so that's, if you read the computer science literature like that, that's the thing that was solved. That's the technology breakthrough, like the, you know, the, the cold fusion or whatever of, of the thing. And then basically said, there's an, there's sort of an immediate and obvious use case for this, which is digital money. Because if I have a, if I have a, basically a, a database, an internet wide database that records, you know, debits and credits or records ownership of assets, then basically I could just basically, those slots can represent money. Uh, they can represent value. And if you own the slot today, you own the money. And if I own the slot tomorrow, you know, I own the money and, 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 and there it goes. And, and, and it's this giant, it's this way to get agreement. So it's a distributed consensus. It's a way to get consensus of who owns what across the entire internet. And, 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 and actually what happens, and this is a, a, a subtle point, is the use case of the capability of doing digital money is sort of an artifact. It's, it's sort of a natural consequence of having this kind of database. Mm -hmm. and, and then by the way, it turns out you also, you, you also want a form of digital money to make a blockchain work because you need to pay the miners, right? And so the, the, the way the blockchain works is people run the code on their, on their computers and you know, that costs them some amount of money, primarily in the form of power. You know, they gotta, well, they got to buy the computers and they got to power the computers and store them somewhere. And so the way the miners get paid is with the currency that sort of emerges from the system. So you've got the, you've got the blockchain, which is sort of the infrastructure, and then you've got this like use case, artifact, spinoff, emergent thing, which is kind of this, you know, the coin, the, the, the currency that comes out the other end. That was that original pairing. And then Im immediately upon that release, people started to say, okay, that's great. And, and you know, the, 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 the true believers right up front were like, okay, that's great. That's obviously going to happen. And, th and then they basically, right from the beginning, they started saying, okay, what else could you do with the blockchain? And that leads to all these other use cases that people are talking about now. And that's what we call Web3. So we, we, we use the term Web3 for all of the basically use cases uh, of the blockchain, which includes digital money, but the other, you know, hundred ideas that people are pursuing today. Right, right. And, and how much of your investment and, and bullishness with respect to Web3 is predicated on the expectation that Bitcoin will endure. Bitcoin specifically as a, if not the only cryptocurrency uh, and store of value, the, uh, a major one. Yeah, so Bitcoin's really unusual. It, it, and it goes back to you know, this original kind of founding you know, myth reality, which is very unusual, which is it's not changing, right? And so, and, and if you just think about technology, like we, we have this adage in, in the Valley, it's like te technology is like bananas. Like it, like it goes, it, new technology becomes obsolete almost immediately, mm. right? Like I, I ship and, you know, you see this all the time now, I ship a new whatever, this, that, video game player, whatever. It's like, you know, a year later, it's like, you know, it's last year's news. It's the previous iPhone model, right? And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's the great, you know, glory of the tech industry. It's like, we keep pushing this stuff forward. We keep, it keeps doing new things. And so, you know, we, there's a, a museum in San Jose called the, you know, the museum of whatever, computer museum, computer history museum mm -hmm. is. 
you know, it's fun to go to, but it's, it's, you know, every single thing in it is something nobody uses anymore because yeah. they're all obsolete. And so any other area of technology, you'd say, you know, Bitcoin comes out, the founder vanishes, it doesn't change. It's essentially unchanged, you know, they made a little tinkering around it, but it's essentially unchanged since 2009. It's now 13 years old. It's obviously going to be completely obsolete. And by the way, lots of other people have developed lots of new blockchains and lots of new forms of cryptocurrency and lots of new Web3 things and so forth along the way. And so shouldn't it just kind of fade away? You know, so, you know we, we honor it as the forerunner of what we have, but we're, we're building better systems now. <laughs> the thing that's so unusual about it and, and, uh, on this topic is that it, it, it is digital gold, right? And so it, 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 it's, it's sort of one and only like real foundational fundamental use case of store of value. And, and basically it's like, okay, it's digital gold. And so like, what would you, if you were going to basically write a spec for digital gold, what would you say would be the main thing you would need from it? And the main thing you would need from it is that it doesn't change. Right. Right. So this is like the one application of technology I've ever seen where it's actually a benefit, right? It's a part of the bull case for it that it doesn't change. In particular, because, it, it, the amount of it doesn't change. You're not going to find much more of it suddenly. Yeah, that's right. The amount, the amount of it is fixed. The amount of it is fixed. But, but even more than that, it's like Bitcoin 10 years, it's, it's the only thing I know of where 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, it's going to be running essentially the same way that it runs today. Hmm. And it's just it's literally because like Satoshi's not here to change it and nobody else is going to change it. And like, it's, it's just, it's, it's on his track. And so, but it's, if, it's, if it's literally digital gold, if it's like a permanent store of value, then all of a sudden you've taken what historically be a weakness, turned it into a strength. So, so, so my, my best guess would be that Bitcoin is sort of the digital gold. My best guess though also would be that it's, it's, it's new systems being developed today or over the next you know, 10 years you know, that will basically take all the other use cases. And, there, and, and again, it's the same thing. Bitcoin's not changing. Bitcoin can't actually do all the other use cases. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's gonna have to be new developments. And so we're, we're, we're in the and camp. You know, this has become a very, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is a full-fledged religious war at this point. So there are, um, you know, very strong believers with a great deal of kind of force and energy on, on all sides of this. And so there's definitely, you know, schisms on this, but we, you know, we're kind of a big tent kind of thing. And we're, we're making, we're, we're making all the bets. We're including uh, Bitcoin. So, but, but you, you're betting that Bitcoin doesn't become the digital currency. You're distinguishing it as a store of value from it being a, an efficient and scalable digital dollar, essentially. Yeah, so it can't, it can't, in its current form, it can't. It, it can't be the digital dollar. It, it, the, the, it, the, the transaction processing system of Bitcoin, the way the blockchain works, it, it's not built for that level of scale and performance. Right. Yeah, and you, you can see that, by the way, because there's a cost associated with transactions. There's so-called mining fees. And you know, the cost to clear a transaction through Bitcoin is, is not, I don't know what it is today, but it's, it's non-trivial. And so, and, and, and then there's long delays. And so, we just like, it's just not going to be able to do that. And that's today, right? If, if, it, if it actually takes on, you know, a, a, you know even a, like a quarter of the global economy, it's going to be many, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than it is today. And it's, it's not going to be able to handle it. So, so this, is the, this is the downside of Satoshi no longer being with us is like, it's, it's not adapting to be able to, like on Earth 2, Satoshi stayed involved hmm. and Bitcoin became everything. But like, that's, that's, not, that's not what's happening on Earth 1. Now, Look, having said that, there are smart entrepreneurs that are developing layers on top of Bitcoin where they're going to try to like make that happen. You know, Jack Dorsey is a smart guy, has a whole effort to try to like have layers on top of Bitcoin to do this kind of thing. There are other people trying to do it. So there are people trying to kind of augment Bitcoin and kind of turbocharge it in different ways. Maybe some of those efforts will work or maybe it will just be brand new systems. There's also, by the way, a big transition, a big technology transition underway. You know, uh, you know the, the original way Bitcoin worked was so-called proof of work where you solve all these math problems, um, right. you know, to sort of validate that you own what you own as uh, so the way the, the underlying transaction processing engine works. There's sort of an overall architecture change being kind of proposed in the industry, which is to what's called proof of stake, which is a sort of a much less energy, you know, sort of aggressive thing. 
and, and so if, if and if, if 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 Ethereum is switching from from proof of work to proof proof of stake, and so if proof of stake works like it's it's one of these phase shifts that happens in the industry where just things work differently on the other side. Bitcoin would remain proof of work because it it kind of mm-hmm. can't change, but but you'll you may have these new systems that just fundamentally work both different and much better for like high scale transaction processing. Now that that's a that's a you know that's a TBD, but like we're we're pretty confident that that has a good chance of succeeding. So I guess I, so now I want to kind of pivot to if not politics, uh, you know, politics adjacent, you know, larger societal concerns, you know, where we are at this moment in history, how technology is coming to the rescue or failing to come to the rescue. Uh, and I guess I, I, as a starting point to this chapter in the conversation, I would reference the essay you wrote early in COVID titled, It's Time to Build, um, which was really this, uh, you know, the, the technologists and entrepreneurs and, and in your case, uh, VC's heart cry for you know, o- over just the misspent energy of the moment and just how much, how we should, I mean, so many of us at the time were feeling that we really needed to seize this opportunity to shore up our, our society against you know, the forces of fragmentation. And it really was an opportunity to get our heads straight. And I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think I, you know, looking back on it, I mean, obviously we're still in COVID land to some degree, but I look back on it as a kind of failed dress rehearsal for something much worse. I mean, I think that I think there will be things that are that are much worse, and I'm not drawing the comforting lesson that I wish I could draw from our performance the, over these last couple of years. That we've learned many lessons, even if we've made some obvious mistakes. We understand what those mistakes were, and we're not going to make those mistakes again. I, I just feel like we're we're all waking up from a bad dream, and in in the waking state, some of the the horrible creatures of the dream are still with us, and that we're we're not all that much wiser. Take me back to the moment you wrote that essay, and, and give me your your view of the last couple of years. What did COVID do to us? Yeah, so th- that essay was a primal scream. <laughs> I think it probably comes across that way, and I yeah. kind of say that in the essay. So, so it was it was at a very specific moment. It was when the you know COVID was hitting in New York City, um, and you know we all thought you know we all thought COVID was going to hit as hard everywhere. It, fortunately, it, it didn't. But like you know, in, in retrospect, like there were specific moments, like the it, you know Italy was a catastrophe, and then um, and then uh, you know New York City was a catastrophe. There were some others, but it, you know it, it fortunately it didn't actually hit the rest of the country the way it hit New York. But at that moment, it seemed like we were all really in for it. Yeah, to the degree to which New York was in for it at that time, which was you know very catastrophic for people in New York at that moment. You know, those were the days of just like constant wailing, you know, ambulance, you know, sounds everywhere in New York. And so the mayor of New York, the sense departed Bill de Blasio, uh, put out a call and said, you know, people with rain ponchos could please donate them to local hospitals for use of surgical gowns. Yes, that inspires confidence in our civilization. Uh, It was just like, gee, you know, by the way, is this a family podcast or can I swear? You you swear to your heart's content. Jesus, you know, I'll just give the light, but Jesus Christ, like, like really, like, you know, the civilization of the United States of America, 240 years in or whatever, literally like we're using rain ponchos for surgical gowns in hospitals in New York City. Honestly, like that's where we've gotten to, you know, we don't, you know, we don't have masks, we don't have this, we don't have that. And and now we, we don't have freaking surgical gowns. So it's like, this is just ridiculous. And so that, 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 uh, that sort of, and then, and then, you know, literally what I tried to do in the essay was I kind of said, look, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of questions and issues around how we got into the situation, but like, maybe we should start scoring ourselves on results. Um, and, you know, maybe like, and I said this in the essay, like if you're on the political right, maybe you should, you know, you need to, you know, more clearly differentiate between what's, you know, what's called, you know, pro-business versus pro-market. 
right? Because pro-business ends up in a lot of cases being pro-monopoly, pro-oligopoly, pro-big business, whereas mm. pro-market's actually pro-competition. So on, the, and you, so on the right, you need to get out from under crony capitalism. On the left, if you're going to say the government's going to do all these incredible things for you, you should, score, you should score that on its results. And like, you know, if the government's going to do all these great things, like, where are they? How's it going? Right? So it's at least saying, like, look, we should at least have a different benchmark here for like how we basically score the performance of these systems that we spend so much money on. And I actually got, I was very proud of how bipartisan the essay was. I kept it deliberately bipartisan. And I got, I got very nice notes from on the Republican side, Kevin McCarthy. Mm-hmm. who sent it to his whole caucus in that Republican House. And I got a very nice note from uh, Saikot Chakrabarty, who's the guy who created AOC. Right. Um, right. And, the Justice, and the Justice Democrats. Yeah. And so it's the one time in my life that everybody liked what I had to say. Yeah, you split the baby perfectly. Perfectly, right. Yeah. Now, no, no, of course, nothing has happened. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe that's why they liked it. But anyway, at the moment. So um, I, I just take a step, but then I take a step back and say, look, like, like everybody else, like I've been trying to figure out what's going on in the world. Basically, my version of the story is in 2015, I was, you know, I was already shocked by what was happening on the left. I was very shocked by Trump winning the nomination. I was very shocked by Trump winning the general election. I was very shocked by the reaction in the, on the, in the, in the Democratic Party to both those. Like, I was just all of a sudden, I was like, okay, whatever, whatever framework I'm using for how things work in society is just clearly not panning out. And so that, that's when I kind of disengaged. And basically what I did was I went on a giant reading binge and I did two things. One is I just tried to read back in history a long way to see how pr- this had happened in prior generations. And then the other is I read all my way out to the far left and to the far right, and as far as I could go in both directions to just try to get a sense of like what the actual landscape of ideas actually looks like. Now, you know, so basically we discovered it's a lot broader than we thought. And so, you know, what is all this? And I guess, you know, what I've come back with, I would say, has been, you know, most influenced by this guy, James Burnham, mm. who wrote these two really critical books that really helped explain, I think, the current state of the world to me. He wrote these in the 40s, actually, and they, they kind of go hand in hand. So one's called The Managerial Revolution, and the other's called The Machiavellians. So, so <laughs> basically, it's that, like, we need to have a very clear understanding of the system that we live under. And the system that we live under is not really properly called a democracy. In fact, it was never really supposed to be a democracy, right? It was supposed to be a representative democracy. And then it's not even really a representative democracy, right? As you can, and you can just kind of see that because, right, the incumbency re-election rates in both the House and the Senate are, you know, close to 100%. And yet everybody's like deeply, deeply unhappy by <laughs> performance of Congress, right? So, and the, you know, Congress polls at like 10%, right? And so, you know, clearly we're like, whatever that system's supposed to be is not the system. Clearly the president, you know, is actually not in charge of much you know, doesn't really get to do much uh, every time, you know, either whatever kind of president, they always try to, you know, they can't get any legislation passed. So then they try to do executive orders and the court smacks those down. And so like, whatever this is, like, it's not, it's not as portrayed. If you read the constitution, it's like, okay, people aren't really paying attention to that that much. Either Congress really isn't doing its job. The executive branch is doing its job. And then, you know, the Congress, you know, the Congress never envisioned the idea of like an administrative state or like, you know, regulations, you know, as, as contrasted to laws or, you know, you know the constitution never you sort of predicted the, the sort of importance of, 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 of sort of special interests. And so it's like, okay, like whatever that is, that's not the system. And so what is the system? And basically what Burnham explains is the system is managerial oligarchy. And, you know, it's probably managerialism is probably the, the key concept, right? Oligarchy mm-hmm. just means rule of the few, but we can talk about that. But it's distinct from democracy, which is rule of the many, oligarchy is rule of the few. And then, but managerialism is kind of the key idea. And, and basically the idea of managerialism is the people in charge are not actually owners, right? They're, they're principles, not, or sorry, they're agents, not principles. Right. And so basically what you have is, a, in his analysis, is sort of a system-wide, basically, uh, principal-agent problem. You know, I think, the, I think um, supposed, right? uh, the principal-agent problem may be arcane to a significant percentage of the audience. Can you describe what that is? 
Yeah, yeah. So the principal is somebody who actually owns something, right? So the the, the easy example here is just in, in capitalism, which is where this is playing out in kind of plain sight right now. So, so the original version of capitalism was called bourgeois capitalism, and this is what Marx always criticized and so forth. And the idea of bourgeois capitalism was you have the owner of a business running that business, right? And so this this led to the sort of myth of the the robber barons, right? So it's like you know, the creator of Stanford University is this guy Leland Stanford. Leland Stanford ran a railroad. Hmm. He owned the railroad, right? He raised money to, to do it, but he owned the railroad. He ran the railroad. It was his. He made all the decisions. He was responsible. If it failed, it was his fault. It was just like a very clean alignment, right, of, of sort of authority and, uh, and, and ownership. In economic terms, you call that a principle. He was a principle, right? He, he, was, he owned it. He was in charge. What you actually have today is not that, right? When you have a big company today, you don't have that. What you have is a professional class of managers, right, who are trained at management schools, right, who are hired, right, to, to, to run, run these companies. They own virtually none of the company, right? Mm -hmm. There's no CEO of any Fortune 500 company that owns more than, you know, 0.01% of the company or whatever. They are, they are there to run the company on behalf of the shareholders. Just a footnote, there's got to be some exceptions to that. I mean, it doesn't Bezos own something close to, you know, 15 or 20% of Amazon, or am I fantasizing that? Right. So this is the thing. This, then this basically goes to, this is where I really figured out that this applies today. So, so when, you have a, when, you have a start, when you have a startup today, when you have an Elon Musk character or a Jeff Bezos character or me when I did my thing, basically what we represent is basically the, the, a, a rump, I call it sort of a rump return of bourgeois capitalism, mm-hmm. right? So, so exactly right. Like Amazon, Amazon was, a bourgeois, it was a bourgeois capitalist exercise. By the way, that's now being absorbed in, into the managerial oligarchy, right? The, the new CEO of Amazon is not a large owner. Right. By the way, he may be a great CEO. He's a great guy. He's a great CEO. He may be great, but he's, he's not the founder. He's not the owner. And so, and, and, and the reason, this is actually the reason startups exist and the reason venture capital exists is because managerial capitalism is very good at sort of administering large-scale oligopolies and monopolies over a long period of time. Managerial capitalism is very bad at ever doing anything new, right? They, they never, they, there's, no, there's no managerial team at any big company or any big government organization that wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I know, we're going to go do some crazy new thing. And if it succeeds, we're going to be heroes. And if it fails, you know, we're probably all going to get fired. Like they never right. do that. So it's, right? it's not the problem in the principal agent problem is the misalignment of incentives. Right. Yes, exactly, hundred percent. Right. So, so if you're a manager, right? If you're, just take a Fortune 500 CEO. If you're, if you're a Fortune 500 CEO, you're going to make fifty million dollars a year as long as you don't get fired. Right. Right. Like a number one priority thing for you in your entire life is I'm going to hold on to this job for as long as I possibly can. And every year that goes by is 50 million bucks in the bank, generational wealth for my family for, you know, a thousand generations to come. Don't get fired, don't get fired, don't get fired. And so it's basically, right, it says, right, how would you go about not getting fired? Don't change anything. Don't do anything. Like, take no risk. Do not go on limbs. Do not try new things. Do not try to buck the system. Do not try to, like, you know. Stay off Twitter, Twitter, Elon. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like, don't do anything that's going to perturb the CEO friend of mine once he he used colloquialism. He says, you don't fuck with the magic, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's working. You just, like, don't break it. And if you you look at, like, what people are taught at, like, Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, this is basically what they're taught. It's like you you run it, like, managing. They, They call it management school for a reason. You manage it. You run it. You do not, do not break it. You don't take risk. So as a consequence, they, they don't build new things, right? And, and so as a consequence, like the arbitrage opportunity, the ability to make money by building new things falls on your Jeff Bezos, your Elon Musk, the people we fund, the people mm-hmm. we back to actually start new companies in the model of the previous form of capitalism, which was bourgeois capitalism. 
but but look, we are a rounding error on the system. Like the you know the, if you if you total up all venture capital and all privately backed tech companies and all you know and by the way, tally the number of companies in the Fortune 500 that are still run by their founders. Right? It's like six. Right. Right. And so the old model of bourgeois capitalism it keeps coming back because you can make money doing it because it's the only way you can do new things. But managerial capitalism runs the economy, and managerialism broadly runs the this you know whatever you want to call it the system you know the state the regime you know that we live under and you know it, it spans you know obviously the fortune 500 the big companies the oligopolies the monopolies it spans the government bureaucracies it spans the political parties it's obviously the press the universities and it's it's an it's an it's a it's a classic oligarchic class and they they are all they're all agents they're zero principles nobody's in charge nobody has the power nobody has accountability mm. nobody has any of this stuff and they do what they do. And then we, we expect them and this system to behave differently and to do things that people used to do in the old days. For example, you know, why don't we have any more new cities, right? Like, you know, every city in the US at some point, there was somebody or some group of people who decided to like start a new city. And like, we don't do that anymore. You know, where are the new bridges? Where are the new freeways? Where are the new nuclear reactors, right? Where are the new factories for making PPE for COVID? Like, where are the new chip plants? Like, where are these things? And, and then, you know, we, we wake up kind of 50 years into this and we're like, we don't have any of those things. We can't do any of those things anymore. And, and basically this, this is my big conclusion. Like we, th this is the system we, we designed, we decided we wanted it. You know, it's, mm. it's weird because it's like a shadow. It's not the constitution as it's written. It's like some other thing, but it's like, whatever it is, it's like obviously much more important than the constitution. And so, you know, we're, we'll basically, you know, as far as I can tell, we'll just keep running like this in perpetuity and kind of see what happens. Right. Although it sounds like lurking in there is a is some nostalgia for something like autocracy, right? Because of the difference between bourgeois capitalism and managerial capitalism is the all these extra people who don't have enough skin in the game to error correct and be motivated appropriately by the, the massive opportunities. And what you want to be able to pivot back to is the founder-led version where it's essentially North Korea, right? Where the guy at the top with bad hair can decide everything. Well, let's not go all the way there. Let's go to an intermediate <laughs> point. So let's go to the creation of the city of Los Angeles, right? I think we, we would probably all agree that, you know, LA has its issues, but like, it's pretty impressive. Like at one point it was just desert, mm. right? And then now it's Los Angeles. And, you know, if you total up the total amount of economic, you know, impact of LA and social and cultural impact, it's been a pretty big deal. Right. So, so LA got created, right? Okay. So how did that happen? Right. And it turns out it, you may be surprised. It was not a spontaneous, you know, thing. Um, it was not an emergent phenomenon. It was a specific, it was a plan run by a, a, a team. There's a, there's a book, there's a book called Thinking Big by uh, Robert, the literary uh, longtime editor, Robert Gottlieb wrote this book. Mm -hmm. And it's a history. It's basically a conjoined history of actually the creation of Los Angeles, the city with the Los Angeles Times newspaper empire, which is kind of how he, how he got to, got to the topic. Yeah, Los Angeles. So, you know, Otis Chandler, was, I forget the guy's name, the original Chandler's name, but, um, you know, he's like, he, wants to have, he wanted to have a big newspaper. Well, what do you need to have a big newspaper? You need a big city. Well, okay, let's go start a big city, right? And this was like, you know, 1890, 1900, not that long ago. Mm. And so literally what they did, this story is so great. So literally what they did was they took out ads in the East Coast press at the time, in the East Coast newspaper, and they had drawings in the ads of basically the garden paradise of Los Angeles. And they basically said, you know, you buy a plot of land in Los Angeles, you move here, it's going to be great, palm trees, grass, like the whole thing. And then, of course, you got to LA and you owned a patch of desert. This is the, <laughs> the pre-Chinatown garden paradise of Los Angeles. Correct, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Chinatown's like the dark version of the story. That's right. exactly right. But yes, that's exactly right. And so, but, you know, and people, people criticize the tech industry for the fake until you make it thing. Like, LA was fake until you make it all the way through. 
And, you know, and, and then, you know, the story unfolds from there. So they, you know, they bootstrapped it. They got, they, they bought a bunch of land. They got a bunch of other people to buy land. You know, a bunch of people felt like they got tricked, but they ended up owning land in LA. You know, then they had the water problem. And then, you know, there's all, there's controversy about the water, but they went and got the water. And, you know, nobody today would think it would be a good idea to like reverse those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. However, however they happened, you know, it clearly Los Angeles worked. And then, and then, and then it happened and like they built it. And, and then by the way, it actually didn't stop there. You may, you may know like Irvine, uh, you know, Irvine is basically a constructed, it's like the last big constructed American city, you know, kind of attached to LA and it was sort mm -hmm. of constructed in the 1950s. But again, like there was a company called the Irvine company and there was an entrepreneur and he said, you know, let there be a new city. And there was, and you know, it took 50 years and it's a giant success. And so like these things happened not that long ago. We used to know how to do these things. We used to build, you know, nuclear plants. We used to build all kinds of things. Um, you know, Henry Ford built the River Rouge factory. Like we used to know how to do this. In fact, we still know how to build a lot of this. We just build it elsewhere, right? We still build fabs all over the world and factories all over the world that just don't happen to be here. And so, yeah, like we, we just had a spirit of building that, you know, we, we basically chose, I go through the long thing of managerial, managerial oligarchy, like we chose to go from what you might call a sort of bourgeois culture, aristocratic talent selection process, you know, sort of this will to power kind of, you know, pre-Cold War and then Cold War era thing where we just decided to like develop the country um, and build all these things. And then in the 1960s and 1970s, we decided we didn't want that anymore. And we decided we wanted an oligarchy instead of an aristocracy. And we decided we wanted managerial capitalism instead of bourgeois capitalism. And we decided we wanted lawyers in charge of everything. And we decided to make everything illegal. And we decided mm -hmm. to make building new cities is illegal and building new nuclear plants is illegal. And Building new road systems. These things are all, hmm. what's the funniest head, you know, there's a lot of competition for this. What's the funniest headline that can come out of Washington, D.C.? My nomination for that is infrastructure bill, hmm. right? There's going to be an infrastructure bill. We're going to have a, we, we did this, by the way, passed a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Okay. Where's that money going? <laughs> right? Like, we know it's not going to roads. It's illegal to build roads. We know it's not building, going to dams. You can't build dams. We know it's not going to build nuclear plants. You're not allowed to do that. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has never, has never in its existence, in its 45 year existence, never approved a new nuclear plant, right? So we, we know we're not doing that. We know it's not going to be like new gas or it's not gonna be a new fracking thing. We do, those are illegal. Um, it's not gonna be a new LNG facility. Those are illegal. Like we've decided that these things are all bad and illegal. And we've decided to basically enter this period of extended stagnation mm -hmm. and we seem to like it and we want more of it. And, you know, off we go. Well, some things are illegal for good reason, obviously. I mean, I, 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 obviously I think we can agree about certain regulations that don't make any sense. But, you know, when you uncover a story, as recently happened in, I think it was, was it the LA Weekly, it was some Los Angeles paper, I don't think it was the Los Angeles Times, where they they'd found all of the barrels of dioxin or some, you know, horrific chemical that had just been punctured and dropped in Santa Monica Bay over the course of decades, making the water there some of the most polluted on earth. And obviously, you want a law which prevents people from doing that sort of thing. But another way of saying that is that even a libertarian, no matter how ideological and, and staunch you might be there, needs to acknowledge that you should have to compensate people for the costs of the, the negative externalities of your business, right? So if, you're, if you have a chemical business and part of it, its consequence is to you know the the vat the vats of toxic sludge overflow and begin leaking onto your neighbor's property. Well, then the remaining purpose of the law at that point is to force you to compensate your neighbor. And if you can't compensate your neighbor adequately, well, then that's not the sort of business that should be legal. And so we, in some sense, we 
this is all a response to market failures with respect to just the, the negative externalities of, of people's entrepreneurial efforts. What are you proposing we do, given that you know, there are uh, foreseeable and, and unforeseeable consequences to all of the creativity that we don't want thwarted? Sure. So a couple of things. So one is I'm definitely not going to make a purist argument and not making a purist argument that there are no laws or regulations. And I'm not certainly making an economic argument that there are no externalities. So that, 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 that in no way am I going to make either of those right. arguments. You know, look, I would say that probably everybody in the abstract, almost everybody would like to have a government that could do what you're describing. You know, they would like to be able to have a government that would be able to basically forecast these risks accurately and then be able to, and, and be able to investigate sort of violations and then be able to have, you know, just recompense and prohibitions in the future. And, and, and so like everybody would like, like to have that. Everybody would like to have that be correct and accurate and work. Um, I think everybody would also like that to like be properly calibrated so that it doesn't, it's the, the whole problem with the, the seen versus the unseen, right? You don't want to just like regulate the scene without taking into account the downstream ramifications for the unseen. We could talk about that some more. Mm. Right. But you, you, want, you want to believe that there would be like a wise, you know, regime <laughs> set of leaders who'd be able to do this. Of course, then you go to Washington and then you're like, well, okay, we're not going to get that at all. Right. Like, <laughs> well, it's no basically chance. all lawyers. I mean, that's the amazing yes. thing is we've, we've decided that the intellectual toolkit you need to run the world is to be a lawyer as opposed to, you know, a scientist or anything else that, that might equip you to understand the, the likely outcome of certain actions. Yeah. Look, I always say, look, a lot, I, look some, of my best, some, of my, some of my best friends are lawyers. You know, if my son brings home a lawyer one day and says he wants to marry, you know, him, her, him, like I'm, I'm all in favor. Welcome, you know, her, him to the family. Right. But yeah, maybe they shouldn't be in charge of everything, right? Like maybe, you know, maybe we could start there. And, you know, because like, look, this goes back to the principal agent thing. Like, who by definition is going to be the best agent? Like, it's going to be the person who talks the best, right? Who puts on the best show? Um, you know, who's mm -hmm. able to present the argument? And of course, who gets trained to do? Who gets trained in the ancient art of rhetoric? Right? Is is lawyers? And and there, you know, there we go. But but let me let me go back to the core of your the core of your thing. So let me let me tell you a, a, an amazing contrasting story from you know this stuff all kind of turned in the early seventies, and there were two moments in the early seventies that kind of you can juxtapose. You know these are both in the Nixon administration, and of course you may recall the Nixon administration got a lot of flack for its foreign policy, but generally domestically was actually you know pretty liberal. You know certainly we would we would consider it that way looking back. Two policies from the Nixon administration: 1970, I believe, was the creation of the um, Environmental Protection Agency. Mm -hmm. um, which is, of course, the agency responsible for the exact scenarios that, that you're talking about. The other thing was in 1972, I believe, uh, he launched a project called, uh, uh, an initiative called Project Independence. And Project Independence was, this was at the beginning of the energy crisis, and he said Project Independence is to make the U.S. energy independent by the year 2000. And they surveyed all of the then current energy technologies, and they looked at, and they had literally just created the EPA, so they were sensitive to environmental issues. And so they looked at gas and coal and everything that possibly could. And of course, what they concluded was nuclear is like by far the cleanest, right? Uh, energy technology with the least impact on the environment, by far the safest, by far the you know, fewest human deaths and so forth. Overwhelmingly, like nuclear is the answer to, to carbon mm -hmm. emissions and, and climate change. And like any, anybody who's intellectually honest and looks at the data basically concludes that. Right. And he said, therefore, we will build a thousand new nuclear reactors, a thousand new nuclear plants in the U.S. by the year 2000, and we will achieve energy independence, and we will be totally clean. And we will basically, by implication, transition to an all-electric economy, and you know, by implication, electric cars and everything else that would follow that. <laughs> You'll notice which of those projects actually happened, mm. right? We got the regulation. We didn't get the nuclear plants. And, and, and to me, like, that perfectly encapsulates the problem. 
which is like we we don't we don't get in a in a system of managerial oligarchy like we don't get what you're we don't get the balance that you described as desirable we get the other thing right and the, and the other thing is just is is stifling stagnation in all directions and yeah well and here, I mean, we, and here we are nuclear is, is an interesting case because this is one thing that my mind changed on you know radically i don't know when but it, it was comparatively late i mean it was probably only a handful of years ago that I realized that my understanding of the risk of nuclear energy and nuclear waste and I mean honestly there's even a an argument for nuclear weapons being a having a massive silver lining I mean we probably did not have the conventional version of World War 3 because right. of the stalemate of mutually assured destruction yep. um you know I I would be a fan of removing that sort of damocles uh if we could but it's it's not perfectly obvious that uh, that would be a good thing, given everything else that might have happened. It's hard to know what the counterfactual is there. But just to come back to nuclear power, you know, I, at some point over the course of my not really looking into it, had imbibed the environmental nostrum that this is dangerous. We haven't figured out what to do with the waste. Efforts to store it underground are precarious and wrongheaded. Uh, this stuff stays around for tens of thousands of years. Uh, this is a nightmare. We should be going to solar and wind as fast as possible. And yet it, it's now pretty obvious that our green energy future has to entail nuclear and that nuclear is far and away the, the, the lowest piece of ripe, low-hanging fruit that we should be picking as quickly as possible. And when you look at the consequences of eschewing it in the Greta Thunberg, you know, doctrinaire way at the moment, you have a, a country like Germany uh, not figuring out that a energy dependence on Russia was a bad idea. And even upon figuring it out during the, you know, their invasion of Ukraine, they're pivoting back to coal, right? I mean, it's just, yep. it's madness. Yep. 100%. Yes, 100%. So the, yeah, this is, and this is, a, this is the other kind of externality, right? This is sort of externality that flows from politics. Um, is, is, is exactly what's happening. So yeah, so it's, it's what's happening in Germany right now and elsewhere in Europe is the exact case study of this. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, this is not going to happen. <laughs> but what should happen is people should study what's happening in Germany very closely and they should see what's happening. And basically it's, you know, I'll just, for people who haven't been following that, I'll just, you know, thumbnail sketch, which is, you know, Europe buys a, on the order of a billion euros of gas and oil from Russia every day. And as a consequence, Europe is funding Russia's invasion and occupation of Ukraine. And they cannot turn it off. And the reason they cannot turn it off is because they can't generate their own energy. They can't generate their own oil and gas. They are turning off their nuclear reactors and they are still turning off their nuclear reactors in Germany. It looks like they might pause on that in France, but they're doing it. They just redecided that in Germany. And they are absolutely, this was already a trend underway of, of greater coal because uh, I'll come back to that, but yeah, coal, coal, they're refiring up all the coal plants. You know, the U.S. got enormous flack under the prior administration for not signing up for the Paris Accords. But if you look at actual emissions data, you know, even prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all this stuff, yeah, U.S. emissions actually fell over the last decade. And emissions in, you know, very, you know, I would say, say sanctimonious Europe were rising, right? And, and it was exactly over this. It was basically they won't do coal. They don't have, you know, uh, they, they won't do they won't do nuclear. Oh, sorry, they, they won't do nuclear. Uh, they don't have natural gas. Let's pause for a second. The problem with uh, solar and wind is they're intermittent. Right. And we do not have the energy storage technologies to be able to accommodate the gaps. And so, and you can't have a system, you know, at least 
in the modern world, you don't want a system that's only on for eight hours a day or whatever it is when the wind happens to be blowing or the sun is out and the clouds are clear. And so you, you need a backstop to solar. It doesn't matter how much solar and wind you do, you need a backstop. And that backstop is logically going to be, it's going to be gas, uh, so oil, natural gas, nuclear, or coal. And so now the Germans want to stop paying Russia and they want to cut off the Russia gas and oil. And by the way, Russia's threatening to cut it off. So they got that pressure on the other side. They don't have the nukes. They're shutting down the nukes. And so they're burning coal and emissions are going to go through the ceiling. And this is the result of 50 years of this kind of managerial oligarchic governance, you know, kind of, you know, of which like the EU and, you know, all these, you know, the Brussels is like peak in the world. And this is the result. And so, like but, but I say, they, they, let me no, just, let me just ask there, they, you're drawing the lesson that this is a, that the nuclear case study is a symptom of a systemic problem. Yeah. But what if it's just, you might have to proliferate other examples to knock down this conjecture, but what, what if it's just a singular case of really bad PR having a, an enormous effect? We had Three Mile Island, we had Chernobyl, we had Fukushima. And those lessons proved so indelible for people that they, they learned, you know, they learned them and, and can't unlearn them, even when they've obviously drawn the wrong conclusions from them. Well, you know, who produces, I mean, who generates the PR? <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same people, right? It's the, same, it's the same system, right? It's the same, it's the same, it's the, you know, officially authorized information organs of the, of the, of the managerial oligarchy is, you know, it's, there, it's, there, there it is in the press. Like, so of course, it's, that's going to be the narrative. Well, look, uh, you know, take another great example of vaccines. Take the mm -hmm. vaccine example. Sure. So, uh, you know, a funny thing happened with, you know, the COVID vaccines aren't perfect, but, you know, they are very effective and they're particularly effective at reducing the severity, right? And, you know, in this new COVID wave, like there's, you know, very little rampant hospitalizations or deaths, you know, because the, the vaccines are, you know, the, the virus is evolving to get less, less harmful and more people have natural immunity, but also the vaccines are actually quite good at addressing uh, uh, illness and death. The same vaccine we have today is a vaccine that Moderna had in January of 2020, right? The, the original COVID mm -hmm. vaccine was developed January 2020. They developed the new vaccine on their mRNA technology in two days. They did it without a live sample of the virus. They just had the virus's, gene virus's genetic code. They had that vaccine a full two months before COVID right, effectively landed in the U.S. There were proposals at that point for fast-tracking the, the safety trials to do what were called challenge, what would yeah. have been called challenge trials. Yeah. We could go in detail, people could look that up. Challenge trials are impossible under this basically system of risk management because they, this goes back to the scene unseen thing. You know, the thing that you would see with challenge trials are people being deliberately infected by COVID in order to run the challenge trials. You know, the unseen thing was because they didn't run the challenge trials, those vaccines weren't rolled out until November, December, January, a year later. And, you know, an extra probably 300,000 people died. Right. Like mm. that decision to not take that risk led to probably 300,000 people dying. In the counterfactual, the vaccine had been rolled out right up front and, and, and those 300,000 people would, would have been much better off. Go back in time, right? The same time period we're talking about doing, you know, nuclear plants when people actually built nuclear plants, when people actually built, you know, highways, when people actually built new cities, you know, the smallpox vaccine, like, you know, the inventor of the smallpox vaccine, like how did he test the smallpox vaccine? He vaccinated himself. Right. Like, how crazy is that? Right. With that, you know, and then he vaccinated, I forget this case, but it was very frequent. They would vaccinate their family, family members as, as stage two of the trial. Yeah, there's, there's a founder for you. Right. Exactly. There's the difference. Right. There it is. And so, you know, look, these are choices. You know, these are choices. The, the, scene, unthink, the scene unseen thing I keep referring to as a principle from Bastiat, the economist, 
where he says basically everybody everybody is worried about the things they can see. They're never worried about the things they don't see. So they they mm. they they see the risk to the people in the trial. They don't see the risk to the people who die because the vaccine's not approved. And basically, by the way, it's the same thing with nuclear, right? They see the risk of the nuclear meltdown um, or whatever, and but they, they, what they don't see is all the emissions coming from all the coal plants. By the right. way, just to, just to finalize on energy real quick, you know, there's something, you, you probably know this, there's something even worse than coal. It's so-called bio, biomass burning in the home. Oh, and yeah. And so it's, yeah, yeah. right, it's like, it's classic as wood. It's wood. Don't, don't wood get me started burned. on wood fires. Yeah, I, so I, I have a, <laughs> uh, an essay out there that people can look up titled The Fireplace Delusion. Uh, which gives, ah. gives my position on, on, on wood fires. So, yes. Yeah. And so, like, globally, if you go to the lowest income countries around the world, right, which, by the way, and, and emissions are highly correlated in income levels, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the emission story globally is a story almost entirely of China and India in the numbers, but then it's, it's, there's a bunch of other countries that are big contributors that have emissions, you know, ri rising quickly because as, 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 as more energy is rolled out. But, you know, there are still many, 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 many people around the world who do not even have access to a coal-powered electric yeah. grid. What they do yeah. is they burn wood in their own home. It's the number is staggering. It's, it's something like yeah. five million people yeah. a year die of yeah. poisoning, air poisoning from wood burning in the home. Like it's it's just like it's it's enormous, like a tragedy, yeah. enormous every single year. And again, it's this unseen thing, right? It's like it's the unseen thing you don't see all those people dying. The solution to that is obvious. It is to build nuclear plants in all these countries. Of course, that's the thing we're not going to do, right? So, so again, it, it just keeps coming back to this thing, which is like, okay, you, you know, whatever managerial, you know, whatever, whatever agent-based system we have that's making these decisions is just completely disconnected from reality. They have no accountability. What's, there's no performance feedback loop. There's no, I mean, you know, who's gotten fired for any of the horrific mistakes on COVID in the last three years? The constant flip-flopping of policies, like yeah. no, you know, there's no accountability. Everybody gets reelected, and and so I, like, th this is when I stopped reading on this stuff because I'm like, okay, the system's working as we've designed it. We seem to like it. Right. Um, well, it'll just keep going. No, but it, it it really isn't working. I mean, it, I mean, it's interesting to consider this through the lens of vaccines because what we have there is a, you know, on your account and mine, a surprisingly effective technology rolled out at blinding speed. And then it, you know, I think the case for challenge trials is so easy to argue for ethically and pragmatically that, it, that I, I, I got to imagine we will manage to do that at some point. I mean, because this is just a matter of informed consent, right? This is not, there is no real negative externality. Uh, it's just a person deciding that they're willing to take this risk for the, the betterment of humanity and, and we should let them. We, we let people skydive and don wingsuits and, you know, throw their lives away on mountaintops. And, uh, you know, we, we should let people you know, engage in research that could uh, save hundreds of thousands of lives. But what we have is a, an information environment where trust in institutions, and in particular the media and, and government, and now even science, has broken down so fully that something like half of our society can't even agree that getting vaccinated makes any sense, you know, or ever made any sense. I mean, maybe, you know, I think it's, you know, there are doubts about, you know, getting your second booster now in the face of new variants of COVID. I mean, this is a continually moving target and, and you know, why we're being slow to roll out new iterations of the vaccine is, you know, anybody's guess. So it's, there's just no question that from my point of view, at one point in the pandemic, there was a, you know, once the data was in, it was absolutely clear that it was rational to get vaccinated. 
that we were in the process of running one of the largest science experiments ever run. We had delivered billions of vaccines the world over. The vaccines were not killing people in any significant numbers, and the virus was. And we could see the difference in outcomes. And yet, you know, I can count on now it requires, you know, two hands, the, the number of people I know personally with significant platforms who got so deranged by doing their own research on this topic that they're basically part of the, the anti-vax movement now, alleging all kinds of conspiracies and craziness and more, you know, amounts of mortality that uh, is incredibly implausible on its face and, uh, you know, unconfirmable. I mean, people have gone properly crazy just trying to sort through the information about whether to get vaccinated over the last couple of years. So that is the alternative to having gatekeeping institutions that people trust run by competent managers, you know, put an asterisk there, well, you know, how do we find the competent ones, um, mm-hmm. is this kind of informational state of nature where people are just doing epistemology by Twitter thread, and it's hard to see this as an improvement. So I think the situation is much worse than you're describing. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be the optimist in this conversation. So I have a story, and then I have a question. So the story is, so I live in you know, Palo Alto, California. I live at ground zero of, you know, it's commonly referred to as the People's Republic uh, of Palo Alto. It gets very supplied to other cities as well, but you know, Palo Alto has a full-fledged case of it. You know, very, very, very incredibly highly educated, right? Everybody's got like, you know, top end degrees, you know, lots of doctors, professors, um, <laughs> lots, of, lots of lawyers, um, lots of engineers. And, you know, everybody like the IQ, IQ levels are off the charts. The local schools are fantastic. Like it's, you know, it's, it's as highly educated a cohort as you're possibly going to get. Mm. It's also, you know, ground zero for the view that you're expressing, right? Which is obviously everybody should get vaccinated. And, and I should say, look, I'm, I'm quadruple vaccinated. My kid has, has as many times as we've been able to get him to do it. Or as many times as the, you know, the doctor lets us, mm. you know, my wife is quadruple vaccinated, so I'm 100% on board with the vaccine. And, you know, and often, often away we go. But, but, but I, I, I live at ground zero of the sort of, you know, what you might call the pro-vax, let's say pro-vax, and let's say like absolute utter condemnation for the troglodytes and, you know, you know retrogrades who are, you know, questioning the, the COVID vaccine. Yeah. Although just, uh, just a, a caveat there, there were a few prominent Stanford docs who went full contrarian on this and have basically become the the Jesus and John the Baptist of, of the anti-vax movement at this point. And, and there's a push at Stanford to get Scott Atlas fired as a consequence, mm. by the way. Right. <laughs> so right. if you, to the extent that you thought academic free, freedom was still a thing, I, I have new, I, I, which I, I don't think you probably did, but I, I have news for you. But however, right. yes, there were, a few, there were a few outliers at Stanford, but like the, the Stanford faculty, if you pull the faculty, well, if you just if you read the open letters that were written against Scott Atlas, it's right. like the who's who of the Stanford faculty. So like it's, again, it's one of these things where it's like 99% on one side, 1% on the other side which is like, we, we kind of are out here on kind of everything. Okay, rewind though to pre-COVID, rewind three years, Re- rewind to the fall of 2019. Um, and we have, you know, at the time a four-year-old and we're going to send him to, uh, to, to kindergarten. Guess what our big concern was? Oh yeah, no one was vaccinated. They were vaccinated properly at the level of uh, some sub-Saharan African village. Super, super intense anti-vax, yeah. super <laughs> intense is super intense. As many as 50% plus of kids in the young cohorts in the best schools around here were not being vaccinated. Yeah. We were concerned about he was going to get measles. Yeah. Yeah. Stone age stuff that's like long since been solved. Like we're going to send this kid into this environment. Like we're talking to the doctor about like, I don't know, can we get him double back so that he's less this or like whatever? And like, how are we going to, 
you know, will the, will the schools actually tell us what the true rate is? And it was a wall out here, a wall of vaccine skepticism, an yep. absolute wall, right? So of course, you know, and I have the, the, the real question underneath this, but I'll ask the, 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 I'll ask the fun question, then the serious question. So the fun question, of course, is what changed, right? What changed to cause the measles vaccine skeptics to transition? You know, the, what, what caused, you know, Palo Alto and Marin and these places that were the least vaccinated places in the country in 2019 to become the most vaccinated places in the country by 2021? Well, it is interesting. I, I think- There's well, a one-word one answer. Well, let, one let, me, answer. Let, let me read your mind. Um, I think that one word is Trump. Correct. Okay, but the- Yes. But I, it's 100%. I, nobody gives a shit about vaccines. Nobody cares. It's all politics. It's 100% politics. By the way, it's why we don't have- By the way, it's why we don't have updated vaccines. It's why we don't have Omicron vaccines. Nobody cares. N nobody cares. Once Biden was elected, nobody cares. Right? Okay, I think, like, I think you're being more cynical than, uh, <laughs> than is I'm warranted. Just, but well, I'm just looking at, I mean, look, look, like, you know, Eric Topol took a victory lap after the election, basically saying how proud he was that he delayed the rollout of the, of the, uh, of the vaccines until after the election. Right. Like, it, you, I mean, Kamala Harris, the sitting vice president in the debate said there's no, you know, I would, I would be really skeptical of taking the Trump vaccine. Right. Like the, the positions on this, and it wasn't well, just, yeah, by the way, yeah. it wasn't this, every single COVID position flipped like this. Right. So in, fe in February of 2020, I don't know if this is a claim to fame or not. We, we, were the first, we were the first business in the U.S. to actually do something about COVID in February because we kind of saw it coming. We had all these biotech experts and all these friends in China. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we thought it was going to spread by touch, by fomite transmission. And so I put up signs in our office say, saying no handshakes. And Vox.com, right, which is the center of this kind of, you know, managerial kind of press that we live under, yeah. you know, wrote the article of like Andreessen is a racist and a xenophobe because he's worried about this, this thing from China, like how dare he? And you'll remember the press was wall to wall that COVID is nothing to be worried about at that point. The actual threat is the flu. COVID is not going to come to the US. If it does, it's not going to be a big deal. Blah, blah, blah. By the way, the medical establishment was uniform at that point that ordinary people, citizens should not wear masks. Tony Fauci went on TV and talked about how, you know, ordinary civilians using masks, they wouldn't know how to put them on properly. They wouldn't know how to fit them. They'd fiddle with them. They'd get dirty. It'd be mm. worse to wear a mask than to not wear a mask. On every single thing, like the position flipped and then flopped and then flipped and then flopped. Anyway, winding up to my big question for you, which is when you look at these, as I know you do, you look at these, you know, Gallup polls and so forth that show faith in, in institutions and, you know, they've been dropping for 50 years. Do you think today's faith that people have in institutions is too high or too low? Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, there's a, uh, another way to ask that question is, is the, the recent fairly catastrophic drop in faith warranted? And, um, I, I think in many respects it is, and but that, I mean, that's just that's just a statement of how depressing the problem has become, and it's fairly mysterious how we reboot from here, right? Because I, I think we're in a situation where we're paying two prices here. We're paying the price of uh, for incompetence at the institutional level, right? I mean, we the, the incompetent institutions will get us bad outcomes because they're incompetent. Uh, or incompetent people in, in positions of power will get us bad outcomes. But we're also paying a price for, I mean, there, there was an advantage to trust just generically, even, you know, even when you can't be sure about the level of competence, right? You know, like we're paying an additional price for the, the lack of trust and, and the failure to coordinate our behavior based on that lack of trust. I mean, it's like, and this goes back to a few of the things you were saying Earlier, when you were talking about you know, you know bourgeois capitalism, in the absence of uh, overweening re regulation, we could just get all these things done, right? We could build cities, we could 
you know, we could, we could have a space program. We could, you know, we, I mean, there are all kinds of things we could do that we seem barely capable of now. The question is, can we still, was our ability to do those things and our trust in the institutions that got those things done, was that at all predicated on just a lack of information, right? I mean, do we just have too much information about who people are because we can see them on Twitter uh, or we can right. see, we have other ways of insight, getting gaining insight into their actual level of competence and their ac- you know their actual yes. corruption and and their yes. mixed incentives. And yes. are we actually una- I mean, is this level of transparency antithetical to getting bold and 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 even necessary things done? Yeah, look, I agree with that. Uh, I actually agree with that. That's an argument I actually make to my friends a lot, which is actually if you if you replayed if you replayed prior errors in history through our modern media environment. You probably would have gotten very different results, right? Like, even an example: if the in the, if the if if JFK had had to live in the world of Twitter, I like to think like we would have figured out Vietnam was a huge mistake a lot faster, mm. among other things. And so, you know, you, you many examples like that. I mean, it, it's actually an interesting thought experiment to say like, could FDR have even prosecuted World War II the way that he did in an era of yeah. social media? Oh right? yeah, like, I mean, that's the first example that comes to mind for me. It's just, like, are we capable of fighting wars? Even, right. I mean, so you, so you might think this is a good thing. I mean, we're we're not. Ethically, we have improved to the point that, you know, even a war crime that affects, you know, comparatively, you know, few people, a handful of people is intolerable to us now. But, right. you know, how do you map that on to, you know, the bombing of Dresden or, right. uh, you know, anything else we did during the war, which, I mean, you can argue whether or not the firebombing of cities was, was at all necessary. But some ghastly things were necessary to win the war against the Nazis. and. Well, you could wonder whether we would be capable of those things at the moment. Yeah. So my favorite example, I'm half German, so I'll, I'll claim this, you know, mm-hmm. for myself, um, for my lineage, uh, I, I identify as half German. <laughs> so um, <laughs> my, uh, my uh, anyway, I'll stop there. But um, yeah, look, you know, we always talk about, you know, the, what part of the historical myth of World War II is the reconstruction of Germany, right? What a huge success it was, you know, buried in there, among other things, is the fact that, you know, the, the West, the U.S. put you know, the West Germans under a calorie restriction regime of 800 calories a day. Hmm. How did we ensure that there was no, you know, revanchist Nazi movement? Like, <laughs> you know, try being Nazis on 800 calories a day, right? right. And so, you know, exactly right. Yeah, to, how know, does, it, how does that look on Twitter, right? Like, what? Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, like, yeah, people starving, like really bad, bad stuff. And so, and, and again, this, this is what's so striking about kind of the modern predicament, either the, you know, the, either the modern advances or the modern predicament, depending on your point of view, and it's probably a mix of both. But you know, that wasn't that long ago, right? That was like, you know, our grandparents' generation. And so, yeah, that, that's all changed a lot. You know, look, back, back to the, 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 the core question of the institutions, I guess, I, guess, I guess what I would say, and we come back around to this on the myth part, I guess what I'd say is like, it, it would be useful at least to know the truth, at least for, for some yeah. of us to know the truth, at least maybe the people in charge to know the truth. But the caveat there is I actually do think there are probably certain truths that are not worth knowing, right? Or, or if yeah. known completely are guaranteed to be taken the wrong way by people who just can't deal with those truths. I mean, like, you just, people are so bad at, at understanding probability, for instance, that if you say, I mean, just, just take the, the truths about, you know, to come back to vaccines, you know, it's like, yes, there's some risk of, of myocarditis, right? Well, what is that risk? It, like, there's a way of, there may be no way of framing the risk so that 100% of people can accept it at all. Right, it's just like I mean, this might not be a perfect example, you know. Assuming the risk is low enough, but it's just you have one salient story of a you know a ten-year-old who dies after getting injected, and 
you know, th- there's a third of our society that, you know, that's all they need to know about it. They're never getting vaccinated under those conditions. So then you can argue, is it, is it good to publicize the story of the 10-year-old who died after getting a vaccine? Well, let me start, though, with the truth. We'll work our way backwards from the truth, because right. I, I do think we should at least start with the truth. Like, no. I think the truth, and your, your view on this might vary, but I think the truth is, I think our, the, all, the, all the approval ratings, trust ratings of all current, basically all current institutions are too high. Like, I, I, you know, they should basically be zero, like across a very broad range of, of modern institutions. And I, I, you know, at some point, I think that's just obvious. We could talk about many examples of that. Mm. So, so I, I think we, you know, look, for better or for worse, we've learned something, right? Or, or let's say we're learning something. By the way, the turn, when did the turn happen, right? And maybe this is a turn in the truth. Maybe this is a turn in the myth, some, some combination of the two. But like the turn happened in the early 70s, right? And there's this, there's this great website called WTFHappenedIn1971.com. Hmm. And it's like a thousand graphs that basically show basically a fall off of X or a rise of X right around, actually literally like 19, I was born in 1970, 1971, um, like right around the time I was born, all kinds of things started to go kind of crazy as compared to the way they worked in the past. You might be the Antichrist. That's, that's I, the I might be. Yeah. Like it is freaking eerie. Like it is, it is, it is weird how much stuff started to shift. I, I, would, I would attribute it to the baby boomers, you know, got, you know, graduated college and sort of took everything over and I. I think that's what happened, but you know, yeah, maybe maybe it was me. Um, so, so this, you know, look, so just I, I haven't looked at that site, but I I, I yeah. think I know something about the crazy trend lines that originated that year. Is, just, is I mean, these are these are economic pictures of losses of progress. Well, and social and social indicators, you know, lots of social indicators, everything from single motherhood to you know, out, you know, like all of the different tons and tons and tons and tons of social indicators. Mm. You know, but, I mean, the classic, ex- at, classic yeah, example, the, site, yeah. the classic, ex- classic examples that remember the Moynihan report, this is actually a report from 1965, but the policies weren't really rolled out until the late 60s, early 70s. So this is one of those examples. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan, right, who later went on to become, a, as they say, a lion of the, of the, of the establishment, was a policy aide to LBJ in 1965. And he wrote this really interesting thing. You can just download, it's like 40 pages. It's really good. It's really detailed and interesting. And he said, basically, it was, what's the problem? Basically, what's the problem in the black community? Like, why are black people, like, what, what, you know, what is the underlying kind of issue with civil rights and performance of, of black people in the U.S. and so forth? And he said, look, there's lots of factors, but like a huge thing that, you know, he basically pins a lot of it on is, is basically out of wedlock births and, 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 and single motherhood. And he says, look, and, and he goes through and he says, look, here are all the things that we have done to cause the rate of single motherhood in the black community to be higher than it is in the white community. And like, it's our fault, right? He's not blaming black people for it. It's our fault, and now we need to fix it. And this was like a big input into the Great Society programs at the time, and then the welfare programs, and all the civil rights, you know, legislation, and all the all the things that followed. This is kind of a big input into it. He said at the time, black out of wedlock black births were twenty five percent. Fifty years later, um, and he said, you know, we need to get that as close to zero as we can. Fifty years later, the number is seventy five percent, right? And and by the and by the way, the same thing has happened. The same escalation has happened to out of wedlock white births, right? It's you know it's the same it's the same thing. It went from I forget like ten percent to like I don't know forty or forty five or fifty percent now, but it's a, another you know sort of gigantic spike. And so anyway, it's 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 just like it's another one of these examples where it's like okay, the you know you remember the book The Best and the Brightest about Vietnam, right? About the mm. you know McNamara and and the Whiz Kids, um, yeah. yeah, which is another great book, kind of from that era. And you know they made all these decisions, they made the, all the Vietnam decisions, and then it all went pear shaped you know, kind of under Nixon. Well, and I, so it, it, all, it all kind of catalyzed kind of right at that time. My interpretation of it, well, I'd say the Burnham interpretation of it would be that that was the transition point. You know, that was kind of the final kind of transition point from what you might describe on the one hand as sort of bourgeois to managerial, but then on the other hand, you would say aristocratic to oligarchic. 
Well, um, isn't it, I'm, I'm now looking at the site and it's, it's refreshing yeah. my memory. Isn't it, it's not that productivity declined, I mean, because productivity keeps going up and to the right, but it's, you know, wage co- compensation flatlined and, you know, the real GDP went up per capita, but, you know, the real earnings of people flatlined. And so isn't that just a, a statement about how inequality exploded? And you know, just but, it was a kind of a winner. We have a winner-take-all economy at this point. But what caused that, right? Like, what, what, what caused that? Like, for changes that dramatic, like what actually happened? And then again, this goes to my question of like, first, do I think we need to ask the truth? Hmm. Like, what caused that? The the and again, the the, the Burnhamite kind of explanation would be that was sort of the, the sort of fifties and sixties were like the last gasp of the old American aristocracy. You know, sort of the aristocracy, meritocracy, right? Because it was a full aristocracy at one point, and then they sort of introduced kind of in the 20s and 30s and on, they kind of introduced a meritocratic component to it. But isn't this, and then a, it was like, this... Isn't it a story of, uh, isn't this like part of Piketty's thesis, just the returns to capital are so much greater than the returns to labor that there's a kind of an escape You know, he's such, a, he's such a communist <laughs> that I have a hard mm-hmm. time taking him. Taking him so I'll let other people judge that. I, I <laughs> guess as an investor, I wish... I wish he were right. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that that's, that's what actually happens. You know, look, there's also, look, there's also other transitions. There's good things. The transition from an agriculture and manufacturing economy to a services and software economy, you know, mm-hmm. has its positive aspects. Workplace, you know, injuries are way down and so forth. <laughs> but, but also there's just the, down, dis- isn't it, disability also, claims are way up. Right. But there's, there's the financialization of everything, right? You just have this kind financialization. of financialization. Well, here's the other thing is like, do we actually... Do we actually, okay, here's a, here's a thing where actually Piketty and I might agree. I don't know. I don't know if he'd agree. I don't know if he'd agree with me, if, he, if he'd deign to even come this far to the right to agree with me. But other, there are other people on the left who would agree with me on the following, which is, do, do we actually live in a capitalist system? Do we actually live in a market economy? Or do we live in what is more accurately characterized as sort of a managed oligopolistic economy that's intertwined with the government? Hmm. And I'll just tell you, like, and again, this goes back to this difference between bourgeois capitalism and managerial capitalism. When I look at the economy, I see sector after sector after sector with these old line Fortune 500 monopolistic oligopolistic entities that are nominally private companies, in reality they've achieved regulatory capture, right? They're intertwined with the government. They have government, you know, a lot of government control, but also a lot of government protection. You know, banking is the canonical case of this to the point where they get literally bailed out repeatedly. And you know, the two big, you know, mm-hmm. the classic example. The two. This goes back to your desire for a, a good regulatory regime. You know, how's this for a story? The two big to fail banks, the three big to big to fail banks, everybody knew coming out of the financial crisis, the whole problem, systemic risk in the financial system was because it was too centralized. These three big banks were too big. Therefore, we passed a thousand page reform bill called Dodd-Frank to solve that problem. Fast forward 10 years, the, the, those three banks are much larger now than they were in 2007. Right. And so the banking system is getting more concentrated. You know, the education system obviously isn't like incredibly concentrated. The healthcare system is incredibly concentrated, intertwined with the government. You know, I, I, I look at this and I see a picture of we have chosen to live in this managed, whatever you want to call it, managed, managerial, mixed, oligarchic structure where we sort mm. of have companies, but in reality, we have kind of adjuncts to the government. And then to your point, like in the very beginning, like every now and then we'll get an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, but like, boy, are they the exception? That's generally not what happens. Now, you know, look, my day job is to try to like find as many of those people as possible and back, you know, them as, as, as often as I can. Our perspective on that is we're running these kind of rump efforts up against these legacy systems that people seem to like and want and seem to have permanent power. And maybe we can disrupt more of them and maybe we can't. But, th- you know, that is how we got here. I have another example just to take your temperature on, which brings together several of these themes around uh, loss of trust in institutions, you know, populism, information, error correction, etc. Um, what do you think of? The decision to kick Trump 
or Alex Jones or both off of Twitter? You know, I'm probably not going to say a lot about that. I guess I, I, I said some on Twitter already. I, I guess I'll say the following. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm an old school civil libertarian liberal or something in this in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, in the sense of like, I don't know. I was just taught from, you know, kind of all the way up. It's just like free speech, free thought, free expression. You know, how do you get to the right answer? You get there through vigorous debate. You know, how can you tell when somebody has a bad argument when they won't let you say it out loud? You know, I like to say I have the, I have the ethics. I have the free speech ethics of any Midwestern librarian from the year 2010. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you shouldn't have censorship. <laughs> Obviously, it's a bad idea. Like, I don't know. Like, I read Orwell and I was like, this is a cautionary tale. You know, I feel like everybody else read Orwell and they're like, wow, this is a great instruction manual. Like, let's do all this stuff. But, but why not take the li- well, it's a more complicated case than that because no, I, I think not, in the I'm case sorry, of both, well, it's I mean, not. in in the case of both Trump and Alex Jones, it was more than just speech. It was actually leveraging their platform to organize a mob that was doing things that was dangerous out in the real world. I mean, people were getting doxed and foreseeably doxed. I mean, you know, Alex Jones knew that he was getting you know Sandy Hook parents doxed and, and ruining their lives. And, and Twitter was, a, you know, one of the, the means of doing that. But I guess I mean, more fundamental than that, my question is, why not, why doesn't the libertarian in you take the company's eye view of this problem? And, and if, I mean, shouldn't I be free to start a social media company and kick anyone off I want? I mean, I, you know, it can be a, a social media company just for people over six feet tall, couldn't it? Yeah, it's amazing how all the lefties discover free market capitalism right at this point. <laughs> Right, they completely disagree with it right up until this point. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I, uh, luckily, I'm not one of those lefties, so I'm just. Yes, I, I think yes, I'm being consistent yes, straight yes. through. I'm going to be kind of vague. I, I, got, I have too many kind of irons. You know, I'm on the Facebook board. I'm on right. the. I'm, you know, we're involved in the Twitter buyout. So I'm going to. I'm going to kind of fuzz this a little bit. I'm not. I'm not calling or not calling for anything. I'm not calling for you know laws, regulations, anything like that. I, I just think like it, 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 this. This stuff gets painted as as more complicated than it is. It's just straight up. It's just straight up politics. It's just the truth is it's just straight up politics. It's just everybody's got a, everybody, everybody in the world has a political agenda. There are people in a position to enforce their agenda on other people. It's just straight. It, it, that is all it is. But, but it's it, just it, everything lines, everything lines up, everything lines up politically every single time. I mean, look, when I grew up, when I, when I grew up, you remember this, like in the eighties, it was always the right trying to impose censorship and everything. And, you know, I, did you see the, you saw the new Stranger Things season, but they, they, they recreate what it was like to play D&D in the 1980s, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, no, I haven't seen it. Which is, they, they sort of bring, remember the satanic panic, right? So it was going to be, you know, yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. You know, you don't yeah. understand, like, this is serious. Like, Dungeons and Dragons is going to destroy, you know, the morality of an yeah. entire generation of kids, right? This has to be banned. That was amazing. And then, you know, heavy metal music and like, you know, in, in the 50s, it was comic books. It, it's always something, right? And it's, and it's always the same claim, right? It's going to undermine morality. It's going to undermine public order. It's going to undermine the proper structuring of society. It's unconscionable. You can't possibly support this. Obviously, it has to be an exception. It always lines up in politics. It's always obvious to the other side that it lines up in politics. It's never obvious to the side that's doing it. They've always got a thousand excuses. It's just, it's just politics. Well, no, but it isn't. I mean, in my case, it really isn't. It's just, because I think this, you know, I would apply this. You're only applying this to one side. I spend at least as much time, probably more time, castigating the far left than I spend castigating Trump or, or the far right, just because I, th- I think the, the problems with the far left affect institutions I, I care about more at the moment, and they're harder for smart people to understand. What could be the problem with Black Lives Matter, right? Like, it's, it, there are more, you know, high IQ ethical people taken in by the cult-like behavior on that side of the political spectrum than are taken in by QAnon or 
the other products of Trumpistan, right? So it's I'm more pointed in that direction. But I, I guess it's a, it's much more of a pure libertarian point of view. It's like behind every law there is a gun, right? And so it's like, so how many guns do you want to proliferate? I mean, how how often do you want a gun pointed at you? And do I really want a government that's going to force me to keep certain odious people who I want off my platform that I built. And that's so like, like, should I be forced to platform somebody on this podcast just because I haven't had enough of that flavor of somebody in the last month? Uh, no, right? I mean, like, I, I should have complete control over who I have on this podcast. So what seems to be the argument is that Twitter and, and, and Facebook and other platforms, I guess YouTube, got so big that they can't be treated like ordinary companies anymore. They have to be treated like public utilities of some sort. Is that, is that the argument you're making here? No, definitely not. And I, look, I can't, I can't weigh in on this. I, I'm, too, okay. I'm too anything. This, this is a true case where anything I say gets used against me. Um, okay. So like literally in federal court. So I, I am zero, just for the record, I am zero on this topic. Like I'm not weighing in pro or con or anything or making any policy recommendation. Zero, any of that. I can't. Uh, look, what I would just say on the broader issue is like, look, it, it's just kind of, you know, ultimately it's the same question. You know, look, if, if, if people like how things are going, they're going to get more of the same. Like if they don't, something has to change. Like something has to change. And I'm not, again, I'm just not a policy recommendation or anything. You know, maybe it's just people need to vote with their feet, right? And go to, go to different platforms or something. But, you know, I, I guess I can tell you this, like if nothing changes, nothing's going to change. Like it's just, it, it, things are going to continue like they are or get worse. The, 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 the vector is all in one direction on this stuff. Hmm. So what would you do, like, if given the mess we just made, uh, and I mean, we basically performed a, a, a fairly frenzied autopsy on, on the current moment, and, and there's <laughs> yes. blood on the ceiling and the walls and the floor, if you had complete control over what we did next collectively, you know, what, what's on your short list of things you really want to see happen? Yeah, so look, the, the big thing is, and, and this may be, you may disagree with this, but um, it's kind of a radical statement, but I believe it, which is I think institutional reform is impossible. I don't think institutions get reformed. I used to think that. I don't think that anymore. All of my friends who've ever been involved in institutional reform efforts, I've just broken their pick against them, you know, public education, on and on and on. And so, like, I think the current, this is why I asked the question on the truth, you know, are the current institutions actually better or worse than we think? And I think, you know, they, I think they're, they're bad. Hmm. And I, I don't think they get reformed. And they don't get reformed because of incentives, because the people who are running them now like it this way, and this is going to, this is how it's going to continue. So I, I think the thing to do is build new institutions. Uh, and, and look, I think, honestly, you're an example of this. Like, why are you not doing this for, you know, CBS or NPR? Why do you do this for yourself? Because you're building, you've built your own institution. And so I, I think the thing to do is build new institutions. You know, this, this is our day job. You know, this is what we try to do is, you know, work with founders across, you know, work with these kind of rump bourgeois capitalist founders, you know, to build new companies that when they succeed, become new institutions. We hope every time that they become major institutions. You know, we hope that they maintain as they grow the sort of positive qualities that we see in them in the beginning. You know, we, we hope they don't morph into the bad version, you know, that we've been talking about. But do you think there's something just about scale that requires a morphing into something that's moribund and managerial and rent-seeking and depressing? Well, there's a bunch of things that can happen. So one is, look, the handoff from the founder to the man to the, the handoff from the founder to kind of the professional CEO is kind of a key pivot point. Hmm. And there have been professional CEOs at various companies. I would name, you know, John Chambers uh, as one example at Cisco. There, there are others, you know, who have kind of picked up the baton at some of these companies and continue to innovate with them over time. And so, that, you know, that, that's a key handoff point. You know, I mentioned Andy Jassy's taken over to Amazon. Hopefully he'll be able to do that for Amazon. You know, that's a key point. Look, there's, other, there's another key point that happens when the government gets involved and not, 
this is not specific, you know, not at all specific to the social media question, but just in general, you know, when you have a company in field X that the government's involved in and you get big enough that they care about you and they come at you, you know, you do have a fundamental decision to make, which is do you fight them or do you collaborate with them? And, you know, the form of collaboration is known as regulatory capture. Um, and you basically capture them and they capture you. And that's the trade-off that the banks have made and that the car companies have made and that many other, you know, companies in, in America have made over the last, you know, century. And so, you know, tech companies are, you know, can be included in that, you know, no question. And so, you know, what, what do you do there? Um, you know, our, all of our, you know, payments companies, financial services companies, you know, fa- you know obviously face this question. Mm. You know, look, the third is like, there's a question for the people involved in these companies, which is like, you know, if y- y- a lot of our founders are like these really young, scrappy people coming from kind of these, you know, kind of oddball backgrounds, their families weren't rich, they didn't go to great schools, you know, they kind of come out of nowhere, they come from other countries, you know, they don't have any historical basis for kind of power in America, but they become, you know, when it works, they become rich and successful American founders. They get invited into the system, right? They get invited to Davos and Aspen hmm. um, and, you know, to join the, you know, Atlantic Council and the Council on Foreign Relations and all the marker, you know, become a donor to the political parties and so forth. And they get invited in and a lot of them join the club. So I always kind of admire the ones that don't. You know, look, so there's a natural process there where, you know, the, the, like the, the gravity well of the current system is very strong. You know, look, that said, we can keep funding new ones, right? We, we can, you know, part of the great part about our job is we can keep, you know, I, I always just call this as like we're putting up, we're putting up X-Wing fighters against the Star Destroyer, right? right? Whereas the, the Star Destroyer is the status quo. And, you know, we can keep funding new X-Wing fighters and flying them up against the Death Star. Some of them will get through. You know, so anyway, so building new institutions is, I think, the main thing. And then look, at, at some point, there is a broader societal question, right? And it's, and it's a question that we answer every time we buy a product from a company and every time we vote for a political candidate. Um, and every time we express a view, um, you know, and every time we donate to an activist campaign or whatever, and it's like, okay, what kind of society do we, do we want to live in? And if we want to live in this one, you know, if we want, do we want to live in a, in, a, in a system in which the reelection rate in the House of Representatives is 98% and the approval rating of the House is 10%, hmm. right? <laughs> Maybe at some point we should stop reelecting, you know, like at some point there are different decisions to get made. Um, is there anything and- that a, a star chamber of a few dozen billionaire friends could accomplish that should be accomplished? I mean, is there, is there a role for your know, truly aggressive philanthropy here or, you know, s- truly scaled philanthropy or, you know, a, a third political party? I mean, how do, how do you, po- is it possible to open up another front uh, in this uh, poorly defined war against decrepitude and de-civilization that uh, very well-connected, well-resourced people could do on their own without uh, asking permission. Yeah, so the philanthropy mostly goes in the other direction, as you're probably aware, right? Yeah. So why do we have, you know, chaos and carnage in the streets, right? It's because we, you know, there's a coalition of billionaires that have elected all these pro-crime DAs, <laughs> right? And continue mm-hmm. to fund them for reasons I don't understand. And, you know, people get murdered every, every day as a result. And, you know, they seem to like it. They seem to want more of it because they keep pouring money into these things. So like most of the philanthropy is headed in the other direction. Uh, I mean, how you become a certified American oligarch elite is you donate to all the right causes. Those are all the causes that have led to the current situation. So, that, so the system is, is, is again, the sort of incentives are wired to kind of take you in the, in, the, in the opposite direction of what you're talking about. I mean, look, yeah, I mean, look, anybody, you know, look, the number one form of philanthropy I would look at would, would again, it would be creation of new institutions. You know, the University of Austin, UATX project, you know, is, a, is I think, a, a, a potentially a very big advance. Um, look, media, I think matters a lot. You know, like I think what you guys do, you know, people like you and people like you do matters mm-hmm. a lot, like to be able to have a broader range of voices out there and to have real debates and not have it be, you know, shoehorned into the existing formats and the existing, you know, kind of constraints and the existing media, I think is, is obviously critical. 
Well, I'll give you one. I would say push is coming to shove in the education system, right? Like we don't need to rehash everything, but like the education system has <laughs> real problems. Hmm. It's gone crazy uh, in a lot of places, including where I live. You know, parents maybe didn't know how crazy it was, but then COVID happened and a lot of parents saw what their kids were being taught in school over video and they were appropriately horrified. You know, a lot of parents are moving their kids out of the system. There's growing pressure to defund the system and redirect the money to parents. Like, you know, maybe this is a tipping point on that. Um, right. I, I was going to say this. I'm a big fan of crisis as an answer. You know, basically it's, it's, it's the old um, Rahm Emanuel crisis is a terrible thing to, wa to waste. The, yeah. the most, here's, here's a th here would be a slightly optimistic thing, which would be, look, maybe the Russia thing in Europe, maybe that's finally the kick in the butt we need on nuclear, right? Right. And, and by the way, it might, it might be my, my French friends tell me like maybe France actually leads the way on this one. Like maybe France, France was always pro, more pro-nuclear. Yeah. And maybe may, here, would be a good, here would be a good news story, which is France basically says what Germany's doing is just dumb, counterproductive in every possible way, including by their own standards of emission levels. And so we in France are going to lead the way. We're going to build nukes. And by the way, we're going to go build the nukes for Germany also the day they want them. And maybe, you know, Germany has one super cold night <laughs> this winter and people get really mad. And they invite the French and the French build nukes. And in three years, we're having a conversation. We have a nuclear renaissance going on. Right. That would be great. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that problem needs to get a lot worse before that happens. I, you know, I don't know. Well, Mark, there's so much to talk about. Uh, I know we're at the end of our allotted time. So um, I'm going to save the, uh, the other topic that I really wanted to cover with you for a future conversation. But I, I think we could have a very interesting conversation about AI and related matters. So sure. let's, uh, yes. let's set the table for, for the future. Thank you for the time you've given us. Really, uh, it's great to get you on the podcast. Awesome, Sam. It's been great to be here. Thank you. <laughs>